This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for around 14 years now and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience, a 15% discount, not on one purchase, but continuously. And I'll give you that code in just a moment. But I want to do a product showcase on their new Atlas sneakers and boots. So I'm a big believer in the fact that footwear can either improve our health or break down our health. And the Atlas sneaker actually has a new foam system that disperses the body weight, whether just the body weight, whether it's a, a vest and a gun, whether it's EMS bags being carried. And on top of that, they're lightweight, despite having the same protection that's required in the tactical space. So I have a pair of Atlas sneakers myself, and I can attest they're extremely comfortable. On top of footwear, of course, 5.11 offers a gamut of uniforms and equipment, whether it's plate carriers, backpacks, flashlights, you name it, they have it. All you have to do is go to 5.11tactical.com and use the code SHIELD15. That's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 5.11tactical.com, and you will save every time you purchase. And to learn more about the company 511 Tactical, you can listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 449 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute pleasure to welcome on the show Dr. Ryan Stanton. Now, Ryan is an emergency medicine physician in Lexington, Kentucky, but is also a traveling physician with the NASCAR team. So there was so much to unpack from obviously his work with the racing, but also areas like childhood obesity and mental health and 911 abuse and so many other areas. And he's also an avid podcaster as well. So we discussed that too. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on. 
subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, the audience. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Dr. Ryan Stanton. Enjoy. So Ryan, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're about to go to a NASCAR race and we'll obviously explain that in a minute. But uh, thank you for taking the time this morning coming on the show. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Glad you came on my show. Glad that we connected and, uh, you know, different careers, but like-minded individuals with uh, wanting to get out information, whether it's education, um, you know, knowledge, mental, physical health, whatever it may be. You know, this EMS, uh, frontline medicine, that's my wheelhouse and I love it. Absolutely, as do I. Um, So because you move around a lot, because you are medical director for NASCAR amongst many other hats that you wear, where on planet Earth are we finding you right now? I am currently in a hotel in, uh, well, technically right now I'm in Johnson City, Tennessee, which is a city where I lived in for 20 years. This is actually the city and just across the street, 100 yards from where I'm sitting right now is where I went to medical school. Uh, did all my classes. Uh, our our common uh, connection uh, was with me there just across the way. Undergraduate medical school, first year residency as a surgery resident here before going to emergency medicine. But we're here for the Bristol dirt race. And uh, so they threw a bunch of dirt, like not, I, I was going to say a ton, but it's many, 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 many tons of dirt on top of a track. And we're going to have dirt racing. Well, everybody knows that in the spring, the southeast tends to stay pretty rainy. There's a reason this part of the country is green and beautiful. It's because it rains a lot. And, you know, if there's one thing that's sensitive, it's a racetrack. If there's one thing that's more sensitive, it's a racetrack with dirt. And so we're sitting here hoping we're going to get in this race today because it was wildly entertaining Friday uh, to see those cars and trucks going around on a dirt track. Um, it rained out yesterday, hoping to get things in today. But right now it is pouring down rain behind me. The ceiling is leaking just a little bit beside me and, <laughs> in the uh, hotel. Yeah, so we're you know it's it's one of those things where watch and wait and hope the weather starts to behave. Beautiful. Well, I mean Daytona is not too far from where I am, and I know you mentioned the mutual contact was um, Dr. Joseph Ibrahim from RMC in uh, Orlando, who I want to actually get back on the show again. So hopefully people listening, if they heard the first one. There should be another one coming. Um, well, you mentioned medical school. I'd like to go even further back. So tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Yeah, so I was I was born in Atlanta, Georgia. At what point at, at that point it was uh, called Georgia Baptist. It's now Medical Center of Atlanta, I believe, in downtown Atlanta, Georgia. Lived down there for nine years. Um, I am uh, my father uh, at that point was a vascular surgeon. Uh, my mother uh, was uh, came up as a teacher at that point with the family, me being the second of three, um, so was staying at home. And so I have an older brother that's seven years older than me. Um, and so once he turned 18, went into the Air Force, ended up in Turkey. He actually lives about five minutes from where, well, about five miles from where I am right now. And, the, and then my sister, um, who is two, a little over two years younger than me, 
uh, lives now in Eastern Virginia. She's a physical therapist. And so when we, when I was nine years old, we moved here because my dad was used to being a vascular surgeon driving into downtown Atlanta, and it hasn't changed that much. They just keep adding lanes, is that it was taking two hours to and from. And so he wanted to move someplace where it took him five minutes to get to work every day, five minutes to or from. So came up Johnson City, Tennessee. Nice, you know, a, at that at that point, probably fifty thousand people lived here. Right now, it's in the sixties, and big healthcare community, university-based town. So we could do teaching. The VA, the Veterans Administration, is right behind me. Um, fantastic hospital and grounds. A beautiful part of the country. Lots of lakes. We love water. We love outdoors. And uh, so my parents actually still live here. Uh, that's the one thing about traveling down here. I get to see them and hang out with them again. Um, you know, now with getting through COVID starting to actually be able to see them more because we're all vaccinated, which is nice. And so when we came up here, um, lived here in Johnson City for 20 years. So finished up uh, elementary school, middle school, high school, uh, college and medical school. And the nice thing about East Tennessee State was that it had a program where if you, you could apply for medical school after your freshman year of college, and if you got a certain score on the MCAT, then they put in, then you were accepted. You got into the program, maintained classes through the four years of your college, and then you'd go straight into medical school here, which is actually where Joey and I met. And it was, um, you know, fantastic. It's a fantastic program, fantastic part of the country. Um, Dad actually ended up as the president of the university here, uh, getting out of the actual practice of medicine and into the administ- administrative side of medicine with dean of the medical school and then as president of the, of the university for t- uh, 15 years and retired in 2012, still teaching with the medical school. And because of his influence here in Johnson City is one of the reasons, many reasons, residency being the other, that I moved to Lexington, Kentucky, where I've been for the last 15 years. Uh, And not only for my wife and I to go to residency, she's an internal medicine pediatrics physician. Uh, I did emergency medicine up there, but also to kind of be able to establish my own life and my own career, because everything here was kind of Paul Stanton's son. Paul, you know, you're, you're, of the, he is, he was such a, a big name here that, you know, even the name is on the medical school building that needed to kind of stretch my own legs and kind of establish myself. And so that's how Lexington, Kentucky came into it. And now we, you know, the combination of this um, with NASCAR, with emergency medicine, with American College of Emergency Physicians and EMS work with Lexington Fire and EMS, that kind of keeps me busy all the time now. Yeah, I could see that. <laughs> well, with, with you growing up in in a household with a, a physician, how much influence was that on your path? The reason I asked that, even though I didn't follow this particular path, my dad was a veterinary surgeon. So I was exposed to, you know, the surgeries where people brought their animals to us, to him going on call, um, kind of in the James Herriot way for all the British older people that know who that is. Um, and so I really got exposed to that. And even though it didn't send me to the veterinary field, it absolutely made me want to help and ended up being people more so than animals. But what, what kind of influence did that have on your track? Well, it was, it was huge because for one, it established me on a very conservative path in, in, in saying not being a huge risk taker. So medicine, you know, you have a career, the job is pretty well established. It's pretty safe because I, I was actually interested in going into media and entertainment, you know, going, you know, thoughts at some point of going out West and actually, you know, you were out there for a while in, in California, but like going out to California, we had a few people um, from my class, uh, like uh, from my high school that are actually in acting now. And for some reason, 
my class had a lot of people interested in that. And so, you know, Matt Zucri from The Resident, um, who, you know, who's done a lot of uh, stuff out there was in my, was in my high school class. And, you know, there's been a couple others that are out there as well. And so I actually thought about that, um, doing radio through college and kind of making that pathway and then just coming up with the understanding that there really isn't that much, especially in news, um, that much of a market for a big, tall Southern white guy. I mean, honestly, (laughs) just to be, just to be frank, you know, I'm six, five, um, I'm from the South, you know, there's nothing incredibly special about me at all. Um, and that was honestly the market was not there, uh, for my demographic. And so, you know, looking at that type of thing and then seeing that influence of my dad, um, you know, it kind of put me towards that direction. And the nice thing is now that I've finished medical school and residency, I can kind of pull that back in doing some of the TV stuff and radio stuff still. I mean, guest hosted a radio show a couple of weeks ago uh, that I brought some uh, folks in on. So still getting to do that stuff, which is enjoyable. And I like the fact that I don't have to depend on that for the livelihood because that's a very difficult market right now. But, you know, getting back to your question, what did my father, you know, the father's role as a physician kind of play in mind? One, it was really cool. You know, I, I went through as a lifeguard in uh, in high school. I, you know, had a lawn mowing business, but also um, was a lifeguard. And but you know, I didn't know really what it was like. You know, all the treatments were at home. I got stitches so many times at the kitchen table. I think about eight times. Last time I got stitches, uh, other than when, other than when I did my own stitches, um, the last time I got stitches was sitting on the edge of a bathtub at my at my parents' house as my dad sewed up my hand right before I moved to, uh, moved to Kentucky. Um, and everything had gone bad. We didn't have, have any uh, lidocaine at that point. And that's the closest I've ever come to passing out um, from discomfort was actually getting stitches in my hand with no lidocaine. Don't do it. It's a, don't try that at home, kids. It's, it's not ideal. But that, you know, growing up and kind of having health care and medicine, you know, friends or other people get injured, you know, just kind of dealing with that, treating those types of things, knowing what to do with, with wounds and having kind of a, probably an early exposure to the parts of the human body and, and, and anatomy and those types of things. I mean, it was, it definitely drove me in that direction and probably why I am where I am. Um, but it's, it's now I see my kids and my wife and I have medical conversations all the time at the table. So my kids, they don't get grossed out by those conversations. They, probably have an advanced exposure to medicine already, um, more than their peers and things like that. And you almost have to, on occasion, think about pumping the brakes because not everybody's always medical and you start talking about GI-related issues or trauma or wounds or whatever it may be. And you got people at dinner with you and all of a sudden they're, they've stopped eating because they're about to vomit because of the conversations that we all have together. And, and so it's kind of interesting how that dynamic, especially being from a healthcare family, uh, plays out. And I, th- I think it's interesting uh, that your father uh, was a veterinarian uh, because that's actually, I don't like watching medical shows. Um, just You just sit there and o- over the critique and I don't want to be working when I'm not at work. And so we, but we watch veterinary shows. So we watch like Dr. Pohl and all of those other shows, me and my daughters, because we've got a pony. Uh, we live in Kentucky, so of course we've got a pony. And so we watch them and, and watching those shows, I enjoy watching the veterinary shows. Uh, with my girls because it's something that we get some cool stuff and then we actually try to predict what the treatment is going to be before he actually says what the treatment is going to be. And I'm going to tell you, 
on that show, if 80% of you say penicillin, you're going to be right. So that's <laughs> going to be the, tr- that's going to be the treatment of choice, but that's kind of interesting how it kind of all kind of plays together. And it, it all kinds of drives us that way. Um, like for you, uh, getting into, you know, fire and EMS and then myself getting into medicine, there's so much influence. And then how do you kind of make it your own, which is kind of what we've both done. Yeah, exactly. Well, with your, your father being a vascular surgeon, um, and you, where you are now, I mean, you're obviously in good health. You're dealing with, with athletes a lot of the time, whether it's tactical athletes, you know, like firefighters, or whether it's the people that are racing at the track, or even the pit crew. Um, in your household, was there a um, an environment of good nutrition, exercise, that kind of thing? That's very interesting because in my my growing up household, no, it was very southern. It was, it was, you know, big meals. We all ate at the table together. My mom was a fantastic cook, but it was always like good Southern meals with a, you know, a big old steak and potatoes or a, or, you know, lasagna day or whether it was going to be meatloaf day or what it was going to be. But we always ate very well. And my family is, has never been like the pinnacle of fitness in that standard. But then I married somebody who was before going to medical school, was a physical trainer with uh, Vanderbilt. Uh, was a was a personal trainer, big into fitness, avid runner. Her whole family, you know, for the most part's in shape. Um, and her dad owns a gym um, still to this day in his 70s. He's got several state records for lifting. And so once I got into that, my wife actually transitioned to me into more into healthier eating. Um, you know, watching what I eat. And then of course, understanding, you know, there's a certain point in your life where you get to understand your kind of family dynamics, you know, the things that you get passed down, you know, initially it's your height and your, you know, your skin color and, and, you know, everything's like that are passed on. You, you understand those, but then eventually you get to an age where like, these are the medical things that get passed on. And so hyperlipidemia, hypertension, um, you know, eventually heart disease and things like that in certain aspects of the family. So I got into in college, starting getting into more fitness side of things. And then, um, this, this aspect of working with AMR and NASCAR is really where I completely shifted and started doing CrossFit, uh, because one, I have to fit into a fire suit. Um, and, and two, that fire suit's going to be on TV. And, you know, I can always judge myself when I'm walking around on a TV screen. And then third is I have to be able to do these things of getting into the cars, getting on the track, being nimble enough to being aware and get in or out of situations that I need or need to get into or out of. And now getting into middle age, wanting to prevent some of that stuff that runs in the family. And so, so far I've been able to prevent having to be on any medicines for blood pressure, not, you know, type two diabetes, no, uh, the triglyceride levels are, are being managed adequately on their own. And so I think that's very important. And of course, CrossFit, because it makes me get my heart rate up. It makes me do those things and, and just overall functional fitness. And so I feel better because of it. And I feel like I'm over, I'm always in some state of soreness because of whatever the last workout was. But, you know, between my wife and just kind of wanting to be around and fit for my kids and hopefully, you know, eventually grandkids and those types of things really is kind of driving things. And so, you know, this year when we got our, our fire suits, I always said, I, I told our coordinator, I was like, well, we're about to find out if it, we're, I'm going to put on the suit and it's going to find out if it's CrossFit or pizza day, uh, because we have to see how this thing is going to fit around the old dad bod midsection here. So, um, you know, just, you know, there's a lot that goes into it and, 
Thankfully, you know, my wife has been a lot of that reasoning because she is so smart into the nutrition and health and fitness and, and all of those things. And of course, she's she's somebody that, you know, she's still just as lean and, and ripped as she was when we started dating as she pushes, you know, 47 years old now. Beautiful. Well, she's the same age as me for a start, which is brilliant. Um She's a pediatrician. So with someone from a good a physician with a good understanding of nutrition, of, of fitness, what are her observations of the health of the children that she sees in general at the moment? Um, well, that's very interesting because what my wife is, well, was the only pediatric lipidologist in the state of or the Commonwealth of Kentucky. So she was the only one that dealt with lipids in children. You know, there was a cardiologist who, a pediatric cardiologist who had done some of it. They kind of turned it over. And now some of the clinics are starting to open up, but she's actually serving a good portion of the state of Kentucky. And what she's seeing, unfortunately, is adult illnesses showing up in pediatric populations, especially fatty liver disease and diabetes and hypertension and hyperlipidemia, whether it's familial or whether it's just from the dietary and the dietary aspect. We're seeing less activity in children, more screen time, the, the complications of screen time, not only from a physical and physical wellness standpoint, but from a mental wellness standpoint. And that's a huge fight. Uh, having a 13 year old and 11 year old now dealing with the idea of, of screens and you know screen times and interactions and social media and everything that's out there on the internet, you know, is such a challenge for families and the peer pressure, you know, the peer pressure with my daughters, with other friends who have phones that work and, um, and have full access to social media and all those other platforms, you know, that is a big challenge. But what she's seeing right now is unfortunately we've got entire generations of pediatric patients that are suffering from adult diseases because of the path they're on with processed foods, lack of physical activity, um, mental uh, fatigue already because of the things that they're exposed to. And honestly, the life, the life um, skills and, and things that I think that a lot of us are used to uh, growing up of being, knowing what, you know, knowing how to change a tire, knowing how to mow the yard, knowing how to do these things that once we're an adult, we've got to know how to do. Uh, because honestly, you know, for, for most people, gaming isn't going to pay the, the gaming and social media is not going to pay the bills uh, and get the work done. Eventually, we have to have those life skills. And it's going to have to require a reset also because it's we're going to see the overall population impact of folks in their 20s and 30s that are having like stuff that we don't expect until 50s, 60s, 70s uh, with generations coming up. Yeah, I mean, it's heartbreaking to see. I know that it, one of the kind of phrases has been thrown around a lot is this is the first generation where we might outlive our children you know overall mm -hmm. which i think is is horrendous but um it, i think it really was suppressed during this last year and we're going to get into it in a little bit i know you've got a, a firefighter friend that you featured on your website that had covid i got a couple of friends one i interviewed after he recovered from it but he was in icu um, so it's a real thing. And I think there's some factors in our professions that contribute to us being more vulnerable. But the conversation of obesity, diabetes, all these, you know, these pre-existing conditions was suppressed this last year. Oh, it's heresy. You can't talk about that. Then you're, mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're negating COVID, which is absolutely wrong. And I think a lot of the wellness industry were pulling our hair out, you know, with that, that happening. But some of the things that I see, um, that we don't do very well are, I mean, of course, parenting is one thing, and I'm not saying that, you know, 
at all, but it's education. So when we have schools that serve fast food that allow Coca-Cola to have vending machines in there, that PE is, is, is cut away and chipped away, to me, that sets the environment and sets these kids up for, for failure. So in the discussions with your wife, what, what are some of the things that we can do to change this horrendous obesity epidemic that we're in? Well, education is the biggest, you know, because there's this thought that healthy eating is expensive eating. And, you know, one is the American serving size is larger than any in the entire developed world. You know, our plates are giant uh, comparatively, you know, so our servings are large. And so resetting that, I mean, if you look, so you go to a restaurant and you look and, and it's one of those that has the nutritional aspects and the calories associated with it and looking at it. So one of my favorite meals, uh, well, there's two that I really love. I love shrimp and grits and I love jambalaya. And then if you look at those on the normal servings, you're talking 12, 13, 1400 calories, if not more. And so you're, you know, one portion of the meal is taking up over half of the daily allowance. And then not to mention the other things that are within those. And so our meals, the way that we eat in America doesn't lend towards health and wellness. And then you mentioned schools, you know, schools are looking for you know, cost-effective ways that they can mass-produce meals and things of that nature. And so you're right. There's a lot of unhealthy meals. Now, that can work, you know, with with some of the extra fats and extra sugars if there's activity tied to it, if there's significant exertion, you know, the, the running, the, the swimming, the, you know, whatever kids used to do. But the problem is our activity, and we have seen this in the southeast as well, where it was very much an agrarian society that – did manual labor all day long, farming-based activity, and that has backed down, and yet the dietary, the diet hasn't changed significantly. So you're seeing this complete crossover um, over the the food versus activity kind of comparison. And so we do in, in, increase with obesity. And of course, our medical technology is, has made people live longer, allows people to live longer. And so these nat- these things, these degenerative conditions, you know, from our diet and activity and stress and everything else are, are, are starting to become more apparent because we are decreasing the impact of things such as cancer, decreasing some of the impacts of infectious diseases that used to uh, cause so much morbidity and mortality uh, in prior generations. But, you know, from what she, you know, what Donna has always said is that one, we've got to, we, people need to get active. You know, kids need to play. They need to be outside running around, biking, trampolining, you know, whatever things are out there being active, you know, building those muscles, building those bones, you know, learning, you know, the coordination and the balance and all those things they have to learn. And we need to focus and teach them how to eat correctly young because what we teach them young is what they're going to continue to do throughout their lives. If we teach them that they need huge buffet-style meals as much as you can eat, getting your, quote, money's worth out of a, a buffet, then that's going to continue through life. We have to we have to continue to teach that moderation in food, healthier eating, staying away from processed foods, which are all the rage, um, avoiding things such as fast food, the fast fix. And then uh, getting folks more and more active once again. Um, and you can do that. I mean, she has a lot of patients that have made huge changes. Um, but unfortunately, it starts and ends really with the parents. Um, and so many children now are not with parents. They may be with grandparents. They may be within broken homes. They may be, you know, 
to very challenging situations, and especially with the opioid epidemic, so many children now are living with aunts and uncles and grandparents that they struggle with that actual parenting. Grandparents aren't supposed to parent. They are supposed to spoil the kids. You know, they're supposed to be the ones you see every once in a while, and they give you candy, and they give you, you know, ice cream, and, you know, all those things that kids look forward to. But as parents, that time has passed for them, and now they're having to reset and take that all over again. It becomes very challenging, especially with the modern uh, young folks. And so there's a lot of there's a lot of challenges that we're facing, and I think it's going to take a big reset of not only uh, parents and guardians, but also as a whole, our schools and communities to say, you know what, this is where we are. This is where we need to be and, and strive for that. But unfortunately, Americans don't like small plates. We don't like you know, necessarily going out and doing a lot of activity now. Um, you know, some do, but that's kind of where we got to get back to. Yeah. And I think another thing that's lost, you mentioned the processed food and it's, it's kind of scary is if one generation relies on pre-made meals, then you literally have broken that cycle of teaching kids about food and how to cook. Mm-hmm. So I heard uh, Jocko Willink talking about the jeans and geese that they make, and they had to find this old man who's the only guy who knew how to work this loom that was going to make this material they were going to make their jeans from. And because all the jobs have been exported, no one was making that kind of material in the U.S. And it, it was the same thing with food. If we don't teach our children what food looks like, how to prepare it, how to cook it, you know, which which is good, which is bad, um, then I mean, what are they? Gonna, they're going to have to learn from scratch, which is such a, a you know an abandonment of of parental responsibility, in my opinion. Well, and so many people are going for that easy button. It's so much easier to swing by, you know, a fast food restaurant or get carry out or order pizza or whatever it may be. And, you know, I'd still do that. You know, when I'm with my kids and my wife's, you know, out or working or doing whatever, you know, kids are like, let's order pizza. I'm like, okay, let's order pizza. I mean, that's an easy fix. Um, and, and the, our, our society's become in some ways a little bit too easy to make, um, to, to, make not as wise choices. But, you know, just an example of processed foods. So one of the big things for my wife um, with Donna in in education is artificial sweeteners. So a ton of research out there that artificial sweeteners not only don't produce weight loss, they actually produce weight gain. They really jack up the natural functioning of the body. They mess up the gut biome, which actually impacts your weight and fitness very much. Um, and, and the ways that companies now are actually creating new sweeteners. So they just found a new one that's being used a couple of weeks ago. And the name doesn't say anything about sweeteners. It's not broken out. It's just a different chemical. And until you look up that chemical, you don't know that that chemical is actually being used as a sweetener. And so these big companies are making these, continually making these new chemicals that, that introduce a sweet flavor but also jack up everything about the way our body naturally takes care and handles sugars. And so, you know, everything about this whole idea that we want diet sodas or low calorie meals and things like that actually produce just the opposite effect that they are advertised to do. And not to mention that our society so often thinks I got a diet soda and so I can get the bigger sandwich or the larger fries or whatever that translation is. And so theoretically saving 120 calories, I add 300 over here. And not to mention then the artificial sweeteners that just completely mess up the way that we're storing and, and weight loss or weight gain or whatever it may be. And so that's a big push for her. It's to say, listen, don't go for, you know, low fat, 
because of course when it's dead low fat, it was just replacing it with sugars. Um, and then diet, which just replaces it with an artificial sweetener, you know, go for the way God made it foods, you know, natural foods, unprocessed foods. And that is what our body is designed for. And then use those, prepare those in a safer, not necessarily frying everything like we, we do here in the South, but, you know, preparing it in a way that's safer and healthier and more nutritious for you and gives you the things that you need to function. And that was a huge adjustment for me. I was always, you know, here growing up in Johnson City, I was a, I was a swimmer. And so we'd swim twice a day, like four hours a day. And so I'd go, you know, drop by McDonald's and get, you know, a double Big Mac meal with the biggest drink they had and fries as big as the back seat and, you know, eat that. But of course I was burning, you know, thousands of calories a day. And so I never gained an ounce. I was 175 pounds at 6'4 at that point and, you know, lean as a rail. Well, I couldn't continue that. Yeah, that I, I learned in college that that was not going to continue because I was not swimming four hours a day. And, you know, that's that whole kind of reset that you talked about with as simple as how do we sweeten things that we use. And, you know, for me, I'm not completely just sugar. I mean, like with my coffee I've got right here, I use some stevia and that's not, you know, doesn't make my wife super happy. But she says at least it's the the least of the evils at this point. But, you know, being aware that processed foods may be easy, simple, may have a shelf life that ranges in decades, but it's not necessarily what's better for our body. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's uh, you know, a huge, a huge area that we need to get people to understand is that you can't out-train a shitty diet. So, you know, as you <laughs> said, when you were swimming eating McDonald's, had you been eating good, clean food, your performance would have been even better. So yeah. like you said, you were getting away with it, but it wasn't fuel fueling you in a positive way. And conversely, I think, again, there's, a, there's been a lot of um, demonizing of the philosophy that you can reverse chronic disease with diet and exercise, which I think is disgusting that that came from a lot of these companies that are, especially you know, the, the, the chronic disease medicine that we see. So understanding that even if you are 45 and obese and on these pills, that today... You start changing the way you eat, you start moving more, you can absolutely reverse that needle and start turning back the way it's supposed to be going. Well, unfortunately, I think in our country, we have, especially with the ability that you can do direct advertising from drug companies, from pharmaceutical, the pharmaceutical industry, we assume in the United States there's a pill for that. There is a surgery for that. There is something that we can do that's a shortcut to get me back to where I was or where I want to be. And unfortunately, well, let's just use this, you know, use doing CrossFit as an example. And I know you, you do a lot of that, the, the, or really the big time into the, the um, physical, the fitness aspect of things as well, is that, you know, you don't walk into it and you're good or you're in shape or you have the flexibility to do these things. It builds over time and Americans don't like the idea of delayed results. We want immediate satisfaction. And whether that's the fast food, whether that is, you know, the Walmarts and Kmarts and those of the world that allows us or the Amazons now to get what we want when we want it. But unfortunately, we have to completely reset that to say, you know, there are pills and there are treatments that can help if necessary. But the goal should actually be to improve our fitness and improve our diets to the point that our body takes care of it itself. Now, there's familial based and genetic based stuff that, that you can't correct. But like for me with my family, you know, when, when you're talking about, you know, the, the, the diet I had when I was swimming, 
you know, I may have been lean as a rail. And, you know, the one time in my life I could see all my abs. But also at that point, I also had triglycerides that were super high because of exactly what I was eating. And so understanding that and then now with actual functional fitness and a decent diet, my wife, of course, assisting, you know, being able to correct that to where we don't need medications. And I think in, in this country, we need to have that back up with healthcare and medications and treatments that are available to assist and prevent morbidity and mortality. But honestly, it's about resetting our lifestyles. And it's not just diet and exercise. I mean, with, with you being in the, uh, the frontline fire EMS, our sleep cycles, you know, how are we sleeping? There's circadian rhythms, kind of keeping those things in balance because there's so much that plays into our physical and mental wellness. And of course, with shift-based work like the, the like fire and uh, emergency medicine and EMS and police and, you know, many of those people that we talked about being uh, so impacted by COVID, um, you know, we there's everything kind of works against the way our body was designed to work and designed in terms of being healthy and well. So increasing risks of diabetes, hypertension, uh, obesity, cancer, all of those different things based on those, the way that our lives are. And some of those things we can't change. You know, I, we have to have firefighters and paramedics and, um, and emergency physicians and nurses. We have to have those available 24, 7, 365. So how do we diminish or decrease the risks of those careers and those choices with diet and fitness and, and schedules and kind of building in as much routine as possible with a very anti-routine based career. Yeah. I think that's, that's been one of the big questions in, in our associated professions. And the, the answer is definitely not to chop up the shifts. I mean, you know, I've had a lot of sleep, sleep medicine people on here and, you know, I think police and, um, medicine, you know, eights and tens and twelves, that works for them. I think for the fire service, 24 is still the best model, but it's about ask, if you're asking someone to work in a jail, in a dispatch center, whatever it is, and they're going to be up all night, we have to understand it, it's, it's completely inverse at the moment. The people that protect lives seem to work way more hours than the average civilian that goes to bed every night. So mm-hmm. they, you know, 56 hour work week in the fire, for example, minimum. Um, to me, the shift has to be understanding that we are putting so much strain on these professionals that their work week should be significantly lower. So they should have a lot more time in between these shifts so they can get to that point where they're, they're, you know, almost normal again. Because as we've seen, we've lost a huge amount of doctors and nurses and police and firefighters. And I absolutely believe that a lot of that is coming from the sleep deprivation, which is why what would be a resilient man or woman on day one of their profession, 5, 10, 15, 20 years into their career, they're quite the opposite. Well, and as a young person, you can, you can often overcome that sleep deprivation. You can, you know, your body can power through it. Now, you and I are getting to the age now where the body says, nope, we are going to, we are going to get a, a, a decent amount of sleep. And I'm going to make sure that we don't recover as well from sleep deprivation or disruption of the, of the schedule. But as young folks, you know, when I was working um, as a young physician, you know, it wasn't unusual to do... Um, especially when we couldn't get the schedules to align to do a shift here, you know, at this hospital, go directly to the next hospital and then go back to the other hospital and do a 36 hour straight, you know, actually quite busy shifts the entire time without breaks, without proper meals, without, you know, any type of sleep pattern associated with it. And 
you know, that is more of that look, you know, emergency medicine has gotten big into looking at the wellness aspect of our physicians and others that work in the environment. You know, fire and EMS have done very similar. Police are looking at that. How do we, we have to look at the more global picture to say not only the job. So let's say with, with fire, you know, the potential risk and exposure to the heat and carcinogens and chemicals and, you know, just the, the toll of the job itself and then the diet associated with it and the sleep deprivation, we have to look at that entire picture and say, how do we, how do we minimize or mitigate the risk, promote the wellness and longevity so that our firefighters and medics and doctors and nurses can enjoy and be healthy through, throughout their lives? How do we get those patterns? And it's not always, as you mentioned, just about cutting a shift shorter. It, there is, there's some important aspects of longer shifts of being established and, and kind of working with your consistent team. Actually, my medic uh, that is with us here this oh, weekend talked about how she was doing 48-hour shifts with a 56-hour you know, average work week, 48-hour uh, shifts, and loved it because it was the same people, every single shift, the trust, the camaraderie, teamwork, working together for each other's benefit – and then now cutting back to shorter shifts, it's more difficult because you don't know who you're going to work and work with. You don't have that rapport. You don't have that consistency and that schedule that you can build in. So you can build in the routine and the schedule on those longer. But there's a lot of it's very site specific on workload and ability to get some dedicated rest and dedicated you know time and you know not just doing scut work at 2 a.m. in the morning just because that's something to do. There has to be some there's patterns and realizations of the the strains that are on our particular uh, colleagues and workers and folks within our departments. Um, and you have to then work with that to kind of say, how do we make this as beneficial? Because by taking care, and I've always been a firm believer, if you take care of your people, they will take care of the patients or customers or whoever it is. It's not my job as a leader, theoretically, to then make sure, you know, just trying to take care individually of the patients or the customers or whoever it may be. I need to make sure that my team um, everybody is at their maximum performing capability and ready to take care of. And then they produce because, you know, I am one person. But if my department of 300 paramedics is in great shape and, you know, feeling well, rested, mental, physical conditioning is where it needs to be, then they are going to produce exponentially better outcomes than I can do on my own. And that as leaders, that is something you have to look at. That's one thing you have to consider. Minimizing a lot of this BS that we have, you know, the metrics and the, you know, the all the stuff and hoops and things that we have to do and forms and all that stuff and figure out how do we maximize the wellness and performance of each of our each of the members of our team. And, you know, I, I think there's a shift towards that. I think we're starting to see it. But unfortunately, I think we've taken a big toll leading up to this point. Yeah, I agree. Well, just one more area before I, I want to tra transition to the um, opioid epidemic that you touched on and, and get your perception from where you are. I just interviewed uh, a, a firefighter who now works for a telemedicine company, and they got a very interesting model where they are integrating with 911 services. And when you call in, if it's a non-emergent, you know, Omega Alpha type call, you were given the option to speak to a physician. And then they're having this telemedicine conversation. They're, you know, maybe being given a script and sent to a local pharmacy, whatever it is, or just being appeased that, okay, your, your, your child with, you know, the 101 fever, you know, strip them off, cool them down, give them some, some, um, you know, Advil. They're going to be, they're going to be okay. Um, 
And that seems like another conversation as far as taking the loads off the ERs, taking the loads off the the pre-hospital, you know, men and women. Um, have you had any kind of exposure to telemedicine within emergency services? Well, we've actually, you know, we've, we've seen this e, the ET3 side of things where, you know, putting, you know, dispositioning patients to other care sites, whether it's urgent treatment, whether it's clinic, whether it may be. The problem being, especially with the EMS side, is the fact that the billing the ability to to recoup the cost and is is tied only to transport to an emergency department, and so we have to change the construct. We have to change the way that it is that a call does not mean a transport to an emergency department. We have to get the patient the right place, the right time, the right care that they need. And we know that every patient, especially if you're working on the front lines of healthcare, you understand that you've seen every stop along that breath, that continuum of acuity from completely benign and non-emergent to, of course, the life-threatening emergent, you know, right now something's going to happen. And so, unfortunately, the way the system has been designed is that there's only one solution. That is a call, that's a pickup, that's a transport, and then, you know, let the emergency department deal with it. And I think what we're learning, especially with the advent and evolution of community paramedicine, uh, looking at what you're talking about with the telehealth, which COVID has really pushed forward some of the telehealth uh, laws and rules in order to make it more accessible, is that we that it's not a one-stop solution. There has to be, we have to meet the patient where they are and provide them the service they need. So you mentioned the pediatric fever. Well, it would be ideal to be able to have a physician on the other end of the line say, listen, mom or whoever, caregiver, fever is completely normal. That's your kid actually producing an appropriate immune response and making it easier for them to fight off. So we don't worry about the number. The number is not going to hurt a child. There is no fever that they're going to produce on their own that's going to harm them. So treat the patient, treat the child. Are they acting normally at 103? If they are, let it ride. They are fighting off something and it's doing exactly what it needs to do. The fever is just part of the defense mechanism. If they're not feeling well, they're acting crummy, you know, treat that. You know, don't worry about checking the temperature again. It's going to come back. But that education, being able to appease, many times people are getting transported, coming in huge cost and time and resources for really what they need is education. And they need to get information on what to expect. But unfortunately, the way we have it now, we have lines set up that you can call. And so many times it is, you know, if somebody that can't actually provide you know, the the expertise and the education, the information, and the response is, well, just go on to the emergency department. So being able to connect with a healthcare professional that has the expertise and the knowledge to be able to provide that care and say, okay, here's what you need to do right now. Um, this is what we're going to do moving forward. This is what you need to do to expect. And this is what you do for follow-up or continuity of care. But the combination of the current construct of the EMS system and on top of that, the construct of our med- uh, of our medical legal system of everything is a potential lawsuit. The only response is often go to the emergency department, whether it's call, calling your primary care provider, whether it's calling the, you know, your insurance line, whether it's calling EMS, whether it's even calling the hospital, the emergency department from home saying we can't give you medical advice over the phone because everybody's afraid of lawsuits. And I understand why they're there. But unfortunately, all it's doing is it continues to drive this narrow plan of call, pickup, transport, emergency department. And unfortunately, that's just not the way it needs to be. And as you mentioned, if we can create other systems that can significantly decrease that burden, save cost, 
get better outcomes. That's where we got to go. Yeah. Well, thank you for the perspective because I, I I think it's a very exciting um, new conversation. I think the timing is perfect, like you said, post COVID. Um, but the, the, the lawsuit thing, I'll tell you a funny story. When I first came to the US, I don't think I even lived here yet. I think it was just as a tourist. I was in a hotel room and there was yellow pages back in the day. And from the side of the yellow page, opposite side from the spine, the pages you could see had an entire, you know, group of pages that were a different color. And so me, you know, thinking, oh, well, that must be doctors, nurses in hospitals, some sort of medical area. Well, it wasn't. It was probably a fifth or a quarter of the entire width of the yellow pages, but it wasn't. It was lawyers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, at the time when I first was traveling over here, we didn't have that. I think the UK is getting worse now, but we didn't have anything like that back home. But that's just it. Now, fast forward, I become a firefighter, I become a medic. And we're scared, like, oh, you have that, that hangnail. Make sure you write a 15 page essay on the medical report in case you get sued. Um, and then you do these, these refusals and you ask someone to sign on the tough book. It looks like a spider had a stroke on the page. Doesn't look like anything <laughs> that you could actually hold up in court, in my opinion. And that's miraculously going to save you from everything. And to me, it was the same thing. It's like we are held under a license. We're asked to do a certain job. If we stay within those parameters, Steve, you know, has a headache. He says, I, you know, I'm fine. I was a little hot. You know, I, I, I've drunk some water. I'm feeling a little bit better. You do a full assessment. Steve, do you want to go to hospital? No, I don't. And then Steve drops dead from a bleed the next day. That is not anyone's fault. There was no way of knowing. He did the full assessment. You gave him the opportunity. But that's the worst case scenario, the one in a million that, that makes the front page of the paper. So-and-so died of a GI bleed in you know a waiting room in LA. That seems to drive the entire rest of the industry. And I think that you're 100% right. Addressing the frivolous lawsuit element would be a huge game changer in our profession. Well, you look at, you look at, so you're in Florida and, you know, was recently there for two weeks and then out to Phoenix and then, you know, Vegas and even going through southeastern Kentucky, two thirds of the billboards at least are trial, are, are trial lawyers. You know, what was this? Did somebody do this? Did somebody do that? Are you a victim of this? Are you a victim of that? You know, sue, 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 sue. That's all we're going to do. Steve got me $5 million holding up the giant check yeah. on the billboard. Yeah. You does you deserve more, and I you know I think you know the, the the lawyers trial lawyers play a very important role, but unfortunately right now there are no guardrails, you know it's just the wild west of saying I'm going to throw the spaghetti against the wall and see if it sticks, um, and if it doesn't, you know there's money involved, there's time involved, but that is significant. It's a huge driver uh, of us within within medicine and healthcare. This whole idea that I spend more time afraid of the what if, the zebra uh, within the horse farm. Uh, I'm worried about the zebra and not about the maximizing efficiency and safety and uh, resource utilization and all of those things. And that continues to drive this whole very narrow construct of how things have to happen, which is not what is best for the patient. And, you know, that is something that that terribly uh, has to change as we move forward. And, you know, and I live in a state where every single thing that tries to put up guardrails on these lawsuits is knocked down by the Supreme Court because the uh, because the Constitution of Kentucky says that nothing should be put up that hinders somebody's potential to have their day in court. 
that's great. Everybody needs to have, be able to have access to the legal uh, to the legal system if necessary. But right now, what we're saying is everybody should try to go in there to get your money, to get your, you know, to to redistribute the the wealth and do whatever it's going to. And everybody says there's there's you know as you mentioned, natural things happen. You know, the, the saying goes, there's only two sure things, and that's death and taxes. And I know a lot of people who don't pay taxes. So it's really the only thing that's that's mandated is death. And we're all going to die. We all are going to, we all have the same end to our story. And it's going to happen. And in healthcare, there's people that are going to pass away and have a complication or going to have an issue or going to, after they are seen by EMS, by fire, by the emergency department, by the hospital, by the clinics. And we can't assume and we can't expect that as human beings in the practice of medicine are going to catch and prevent every single thing that comes our way. And it's physically impossible because we know the end. We know how this ends. And if we and by and by assuming that that is not the result, then we have this huge industry that comes in and says, well, you didn't stop this from happening. And that's how we end up with. You know, the idea of a, you know, a 95-year-old um, late-stage terminal Alzheimer's patient with contractures who's bedridden getting sent into the emergency department over and over and over again because everybody's afraid of a lawsuit. Everybody's afraid of what if. And honestly, we have to start looking at quality of life over quantity of life. And we have to be able to look at the ways that we can make our systems in healthcare more efficient, safer, and more appropriate for what is indicated as opposed to the current thing, whereas zero, you know, we, we, there is accepted that zero mistakes, zero risk. And unfortunately we're humans. Medicine is challenging no matter where it's practiced. And it's just impossible to, to catch everything. And unfortunately by trying to catch everything and prevent everything, we expose patients, we expose the communities, we expose to, to the cost the evaluations, the risks associated with it. I mean, it really is. We are, we really are a little bit bass backwards. We're a lot of bass backwards. And unfortunately, as you mentioned in Britain, um, every, it's kind of going over the, that, that direction and actually going to Australia is starting to push that direction instead of just the opposite of us getting, of it coming back and, and actually contracting and saying, this is actually where this needs to be. This is where this fits and not the current setting of what it is. Yeah. No, I agree completely. And it's a perfect example. I mean, you take that febrile child, it's two in the morning that was in her bed with her favorite teddy bear, and now you take her into ER with the drunk guy screaming profanities and all this, you know, terrified old lady, and we're putting her on a backboard, even though there's no proof that a mm -hmm. backboard even works with her kyphosis, and she's uncomfortable, and she's scared, and, oh, well, i got to protect myself because, you know, you... You, you slip down from your couch, clearly you must have, you know, multiple, you know, spinal fractures, even though you say you're feeling fine. You know, I mean, there's just it, that CYA, I think, goes against the Hippocratic Oath in a lot of a lot of areas. And we have to use our diligence and our professionalism to do an analysis. And if someone wants to go to the ER, then we take them, no questions. But if someone says they're fine and we do a full assessment, then we have to have faith in our people to say, I trust you as a professional. If that was the case then we don't need to fill another ER bed, you know, scare some child in an ambulance. Um, and then especially the financial burden of that ER visit for an unnecessary cause can be crippling to a family. And what is and the whole idea of if we could get healthcare in frontline, you know, EMS, fire, police, 
uh, emergency medicine hospitals, clinics for that matter, to say what is best for the patient. And we all think that. We all want that to be the case. But just as you mentioned CYA, okay, what is best for the patient, but also what's going to protect my hospital, my emergency department, my my uh, fire EMS agency, my personal career? What is going to protect all of that? What am I going to do to check this box to make sure that I don't fall out on this metric, that I don't miss out on the potential of sepsis, you know, that somebody could fall out as a sepsis down the road or, you know, whatever kind of basket we try to fit them in, whether it's stroke, whether it's MI, whatever it may be, we're trying to bundle everybody into these very narrow diagnoses, which of course introduces anchoring bias uh, on its own. But then we we have to at some point get to this whole idea. And that's the only way, you know, this evolution of the system. And it's going to be a hard pill to swallow for a lot of people to say, we need to do what's best for the patient, even if it goes against what we're currently doing. So that person that child, you know, with the fever, maybe there is a one chance that they could end up bacteremic and septic, you know, as long as those instructions are there to say, if this continues, get checked out. But again, am I going to put 999 through an extensive workup, extensive cost in order to catch that one, because I'm not permitted to miss that one, but put increasing the risk for the other 999 um, is the current way that we do things. And that patient that's in their nursing home, that end-stage nursing home patient working on palliative care and, and, and end-of-life issues and advanced directives to be able to say, listen, for this patient, sure, they may end up with a urinary tract infection. They may have something else going on. But what is actually best for this patient? Because I can guarantee you it's not getting strapped to the backboard and getting shipped to the emergency department for an evaluation to hopefully add another two days to that person's life while bedridden and unaware of their surroundings and everything else that's involved. Or, you know, always the one that we all deal with, which is unwitnessed fall, found on the floor, no complaints, but we got to get them checked out. You know, those are conversations and hard conversations we have to have um, in order to make this system and, and culture move forward um, with what we do. Because honestly, we've allowed it to continue to expand, you know, over the last decades because we had the capacity to do it. But at some point, you know, there's only so much money. There's only so many beds. There's only so many people to respond. And we're going to have to reset everything in order to be able to get to provide the best outcomes for the most number of people beautiful well thank you so much for your perspective i mean that's that's huge and i agree with everything that you said an area that i really like exploring uh, proactive areas um another element i think to to our um culture at the moment i think could be greatly improved is the area of addiction so what are you seeing personally with the opioid epidemic in your area well the the biggest issue and challenge that we have is seeing addiction as a moral failing, as a choice. Um, if you don't understand that addiction is actually a brain disorder, so, um, and actually you can, most people can understand it. If I told a lot of people out there right now, I want you to set your phone down right beside you and not touch it for 24 hours. Very few people would be able to do that, you know, that drive to actually pick it up and actually check Facebook or check email or do whatever it needs to do. Just lay it down there. I mean, all of us have that potential for addiction, but some, you know, have that brain wiring, whether it's something that is childhood. I mean, of course, there's a lot of childhood trauma and, and things that happen with upbringing that can significantly increase people's lifetime risk of addiction. 
But what we're seeing with the opioid epidemic is that we continued for decades, every single drug epidemic throughout our history, whether it was, you know, whether it was heroin, whether it's cocaine, whether whatever it was, is one, we figured out a way to silo it, you know, to say, oh, that is just African-American populations. Oh, that's just homeless and poor people. Oh, this is just somebody for a reason that I don't have to care. And we swept it under the rug and just let it happen and said, law enforcement, you take care of this. Um, this is clearly a law enforcement issue and not a medical diagnosis. Now, we don't do the same things with um, hypertension and diabetes. If people come in after Christmas, after eating a big, you know, a bunch of donuts and then a big salty ham and everything like that, and they come in with their blood pressure through the roof and their sugar is 500, we don't say, you know what, that's a moral failing. You made those choices. You need to go home and you should die. You should go to prison, um, no. actually. Yeah, you should go to prison. That's your choice. <laughs> you did this to yourself. You need to go to prison. And no, we, we, we continue to say, listen, this is what we have to do to get you back to the best level of health and safety that you can get to. Addiction, we don't do that. We've never, we've never done that. And not until this opioid epidemic, which was many times over the worst epidemic in U.S. history uh, in terms of substance abuse. And, it per, and, and the thing it made us do was take notice because it, it impacted every area of society. It was in big cities, but it was in small cities. It was in rural areas. It was in rich. It was in poor. It was in black and white. It was every piece. Uh, it, it permeated every aspect uh, of our communities. And then, you know, a combination of exactly what we've been talking about, about not treating what's best for the patient, but what's best for satisfaction, you know, misconceptions that pain is a fifth vital sign, that everybody deserves to be pain-free, and, you know, the pharmaceutical industry, especially with, uh, with Purdue, driving this as a non-addictive treatment and everybody needs it and deserves it, just completely ignore the evidence that's out there that this is the best way to treat pain. And then we allowed that to continue. And it wasn't until we started to see all these deaths are like, oh, crap, maybe we made a bad decision. And so we started to reset that. And you saw leading up through 2019 we started to plateau those numbers. And they actually started to drop off just a little bit, especially in some of the smaller, in a lot of the communities. But then COVID completely upended the entire process by shutting down uh, access to recovery, to clinics, to counseling, to medications. And so we saw this, and not only that, but we increased the stress, we increased the anxiety, job losses, isolation, you know, everything that, that it goes against what we need as human beings. And so in 2020, we saw the highest, we saw another big jump. So over 80,000 predicted, over 80,000 uh, overdoses overall, with probably about 65,000 of those, 60 to 65,000 of those being opioid uh, related in some, some shape, form, or fashion. So we lost all of those gains that we had. And we're starting to see some decriminalization and trying to pull this out of the law enforcement. Now, there's still clearly some stuff there, but pulling a lot of the individual use and addiction out of law enforcement and then focusing on what it truly is, which is a medical issue, treatment of addiction, um, you know, trying to lead towards, you know, preventing withdrawals, helping them recover, not only dealing with the mental health aspect of it, but dealing with the physical addictions and actually helping them along the way. This isn't about putting them behind bars and throwing away the key. And I still hear that. I still hear it all the time about it's, it's their choice. They deserve to die. I wish they would just die off. 
we got there too soon or whatever it may be. And these are human beings. Nobody ever grew up in, in when they were in elementary school and they said, what do you want to be when they grow up? You know, all of us said astronauts and firefighters and doctors and lawyers or whatever you wanted to be. Nobody said, I want to be dependent on a substance every single day and to give up everything in my life for that substance. These are people who had dreams, who wanted to do something, who wanted to do great things, who wanted to raise a family, who wanted to be safe in their careers, that wanted to travel or do whatever everybody wanted to do, and yet that got hijacked. And unfortunately, we depersonalized, uh, we depersonalized everything uh, with addiction. It didn't make it about a human being. We made it about a substance. And what we have to do is we have to reset that and give them access. You know, EMS, emergency medicine recovery, build and give these folks a place to go because we want them to be a contributing, safe and healthy part of our societies. And unfortunately, we haven't done that. I think especially in Kentucky being much of the epicenter of the opioid epidemic and right now being in the tri-cities of Tennessee, you know, in the Appalachian region that was so heavily impacted where there's a paucity of healthcare access anyway, you know, in much of the Appalachians, not necessarily here, but in much of the Appalachians, you know, a paucity of access to healthcare, access to recovery, um, you know, a history of highly manual labor with the coal industry and construction um, and factory work, a lot of pain associated, injuries associated with those. Um, we've got to complete, we have to continue. And honestly, after COVID, we have to double down to say we have to commit to these people, these human beings, and give them the access that they need to get better. Because if all we're doing is attacking the substance, you know, if we attack opioids, all we're going to do is change the substance. And that's been the history of the U.S. war on drugs is attack the substance. And all you're doing then is changing the substance. If we treat addiction, the rest of the world is always going to oblige at providing whatever substances the United States wants to abuse. And that has been the history. What we have to do is by we can either decrease supply or we can decrease demand. Supply, we can make huge hits and it doesn't impact the supply. But demand, if we can attack the demand for these drugs by helping people and getting them out of the throes of addiction, then we can actually make a significant impact. And it doesn't matter how many opioids are in our communities. It doesn't matter how much cocaine is there. It doesn't matter, you know, whatever the substance is, we've treated that person and there is no market to sell those drugs. And we have people that get their lives back. And, you know, that's where we have to be. And that's, we have to quit just trying to isolate it to ostracize it and to make it a personal failing as opposed to what it is, which is an actually addiction uh, as a medical diagnosis and medical uh, issue that needs to be addressed. Beautiful. Did I preach a little? No, I mean, it, well, a little. It's, it's like you're in my head anyway, because people that listen to this often, even you read the book, I wrote about it in the book too. I mean, I agree yeah. 100%. And if we're being proactive and we want to see, you know, um, less violence on the street, less nervous police officers, you know, using their weapons when maybe they shouldn't have. I mean, all these things that we have seen plastered all over our papers this last year, then this is another root cause. And I couldn't agree more. When you look at the history of drug prohibition and, and the horrendous environment that it was born from, the racism, the failure of, of alcohol prohibition, um, it, you know, a hundred years later almost, it's been an epic failure. And I agree so, so much with the element too of the supply and demand. You and I have seen so many victims of the illicit drug trade, the teenagers riddled with bullet holes. They'll never get to even know what it's like to be a husband, a father, a grandfather. And um, 
understanding that the 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 issues in the Mexican border is coming from that. The terrorism in Afghanistan is funded by the the illicit opioid trade from there. So as the consumer, just like you said, the same way as now there's a slow push in um, grocery stores and you're starting to see healthier food starting to come in. You're starting to see, even as shit as it is, McDonald's being forced to sell salads and all that stuff because people are speaking you know, with their, their buying power. Well, it's the same thing. I had a guy, um, Ed Calderon, on the, who was a law enforcement guy in Mexico, and he was saying, well, you know, the, the legalization of marijuana is now just shifted and now they're growing opium in Mexico. And I agree with you completely. Yeah, if you piecemeal it, you're not addressing the issue. But if you decriminalize all addiction, then now you cut the head off the snake. You don't give them an opportunity to go to a different substance because there is no different substance. But you put the power, take the power away from the scumbags, the, the dealers and, you know, uh, sellers of the world and you put it squarely in the hands of the mental health professionals, the medical community, then you literally would revolutionize the crime on our streets. You would, you would basically address the, the law enforcement staffing issue. We could have two to a car again, like they used to be. The prisons would be thinned out. The court system would be thinned out. And we've seen this in Portugal. I sat with the guy in Lisbon and talked to him and saw it with my own eyes. We've seen it in Switzerland. We've seen it. I forget which one of the, the Central American countries has done it incredibly well. So the, it's already been proven to work in other places. It's already been proven to be a complete fucking failure in this country the way we do it. So there's no better time for this discussion than now when we've got all these people that were disconnected from their tribes, that there's you know greater element of mental ill health, of abuse, of all these things. Today is a day we should be pushing this conversation. Well, and it shouldn't be a war on drugs. It's a war on addiction. Um, just like we want to fight a war against cancer and a war against obesity. Um, you know, so as we discussed diet earlier, diet and wellness, we can't change and force all fast food restaurants to stop serving crappy food or any restaurant for that matter. I mean, it doesn't even have to be fast food. I mean, you look at some of these restaurants we go into that have a meal that's got 2,500 calories, you know, in it with all, you know, the, the fat and salt you need for a week. And so we can't force them. So how do we move that? Oh, we address our choices of dietary needs. And so we make things available for people so they can have, you know, they can make better dietary choices um, and make better, you know, make better decisions in their wellness and fitness. Now, addiction, it, it, of course, it's different from the actual brain wiring standpoint. So it's, it's more challenging than to just give a better option. Um, it is more about actually addressing that. But don't address, it's not addressing the substance itself. It's actually giving the person who's su suffering from a, a use disorder of whatever type it is, the resources they need, the support they need, the community they need, and the medications or access that they may need. And we can spend that money now or we're going to spend it later on, on the complications associated with it. You know, I think one of the big things that we're going to be we're dealing with, the secondary epidemic of the opioid epidemic, is going to be the you know, long-term sequela of endocarditis, of hepatitis, of HIV, of all of these things that come along with it. Um, and, and not to even mention the loss of life, but actually attacking the, the addiction, the, ad, the, the person itself. And I don't mean attacking in a negative way. Attacking addiction... Um, as a medical condition, 
destigmatizing this entire thing, which it's very difficult. I've had long shifts, and in and and I was in that boat as well for many years, um, of, of having a negative connotation or feel towards uh, addiction uh, and the addict itself. Um, but then evolving and sitting down and having those conversations of who they are, how they got to where they are, and then treating them as a human being, as a person, because so much of addiction is the fact that the way we treat addiction is by isolating that person, which is exactly what they don't need. Addiction, for the most part, most people have a loss of hope. They have no reason. Uh, to, they, they don't have self-worth. They don't feel like they deserve to be better. They, don't, they feel like there's no path to get better. And what we can give them is we can give them, one, treat them as a human being. Two, give them hope. And then three, give them the tools that they need to get better. And then understand that, especially with opioids, they're going to relapse. They're going to have moments of failure, usually after stress or trauma or something difficult that happens in their life. And we can't be there to then say, nope, you're done. You've had your chance. We need to get back and say, you need, we're going to give you the opportunity to get back on this wagon because eventually we're going to be on it for the long haul together. And you're going to be able to recover and get your life back and not using this. And honestly, that the way that we have ostracized and marginalized addiction is probably one of the main reasons we're still dealing with it as much as we are right now. Uh, because everybody, many people think it's not my problem. It's not me. Well, what if it is? What if it becomes you? What if it becomes your spouse, your child, your parent, you know, whoever it may be? Now it becomes, now that becomes, uh, hits a lot more to home. And you may want your family member or yourself to have access to that recovery. And what if the rest of the community says, nope, that was your choice. You deserve to die. And that is, and honestly, um, you know, with, with the exception of, you know, a few people in history, nobody deserves to die. Nobody deserves to succumb to a preventable, uh, a preventable, preventable death. And that's, um, you know, and, and that's, I think we have a lot of growing to do. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, your interview, and there's a lot of great books out there, you know, from everything from dreamland on how that kind of came about with Sam Quinones to chasing the screams to, um, you know, to even, you know, books like Hillbill Elegy, you know, looking at those types of things, you know, just understanding that the perspectives and how it happened, why it happened and the facts and treating it as a science as opposed to treating it with um, with our preconceived biased emotions and stereotypes. Yeah. Well, and you talk about hitting home. I mean, I've lost three firefighters I know to opioid overdoses. So, you know, it's it's even killing our very own. And for the for the naysayers, just think about alcohol. How many people you know that lean on that? How many people you know that are morbidly obese? Well, that's a form of addiction. I mean, like you said, it manifests in so many different ways. We just happen to choose that one way and make it criminalized. Now, of those addicts, of the the dealers even, how many amazing positions could those men and women hold had that issue been resolved? How many doctors and police officers and firefighters are disguised right now as addicts and dealers because that was the road they found themselves down? So, you know, to me, from a, from a country that bangs on whatever religious doctrine they subscribe to so hard, we're a very, very faith-based country, that prophet that you hold so high, would they say addicts are a piece of shit? I don't think so, you know? So even if you revert back to that, the, the faith, whatever faith people subscribe to, what would that person do? What would Jesus do? What would Buddha do? They would not do the way that we do that. So no matter which lens you look at it, 
if you look at it from a human being perspective, we're doing it wrong and we have to start doing it the way that Portugal and Switzerland and some of these other ones were, which is, as you said, look at that person as a human being, not a bum, not a whore, not an addict, but a human being. And that's, and you mentioned the faith-based. And I think one of the the fallacies that we have propagated in this country, and, you know, they always say don't talk about, you know, religion, but, you know, it's, it's with the faith-based community, we unfortunately have driven this whole idea that you have to be perfect to be um, a, a Christian or whatever faith or, or, or Buddhist or whatever faith that you, that you subscribe to, that you have to be perfect to be involved. When in actuality, if you look at all of these faith-based communities, if you look at the books that, that have promoted them and, and are actually the source of the belief system, it's about being broken. It's understanding that human beings are broken, that we make mistakes, that every one of us, every one of us um, is, is meant for failure. And the more in the, the, the faith is actually based on being broken. The whole idea of trying to understand and admit and realize that brokenness and then being able to start to put things back together again. Um, and but unfortunately, what we've done is we have decided that one, you have to be perfect. And then two, parsing out to say your challenge is a bad challenge. My challenges are forgiven and everything's good, but your challenges are not. And if, and, and because of that challenge, you don't deserve this grace, this attention, this support, this whatever you need. And honestly, in Lexington, some of the best tools that we have against the fight against opioids have been the faith-based community. Because the churches came in and said, we are willing to put together houses. We're, we're, we're willing to sit with people, to be there with them, to transport them, to get them into recovery, to produce, to actually start recovery centers. And, you know, I think we have to, as we have to understand and build those relationships and, and, and realize that we are not, none of us are too far from that, this lifestyle. You know, there's people, as you mentioned, you had your, your three firefighters that have succumbed to opioid uh, overdoses. But how many? That's just the tip of the iceberg of opioid or medication misuse. Um, or not to mention the, um, uh, the opioid misuse, alcohol misuse, um, abuse, physical, sexual, all of those things. And, um, you know, so often it, it lives in the shadows. And I think too often we're doing the, that's a terrible situation, or suicide, honestly. Uh, suicide is something that's been a huge issue for our, for our communities and for our professions of saying, of retrospecting and saying, I wish we could have or known or whatever it was, instead of taking down the stigma and not ostracizing and getting people the need, they, the, the help that they need before it's too late. But, you know, especially in healthcare. If you ever admit that you have a substance use issue or you admit that you have a behavioral health or psychiatric condition, your licensure, you're blackballed by, by groups and by hospitals. I've got a friend of mine who is recovered 15 years out from opioid abuse and misuse and still uh, opportunities for employment are significantly limited because of that black flag, that scarlet letter on their resume that said, you know, that assumption that you are, you are morally weak 
Um, and unfortunately, that's we have to get past that. We have to be able to open it up to where people can talk, people can seek help, people can, people can admit the challenges that they're facing so we can get them help and understanding that they're not throwing away their whole livelihood by doing so. Yeah, and I think that's a very powerful, you know, personal story about that one physician. And, and it's crazy because if you look at the history of the incredibly huge amount of hours that residents have to undergo, if I'm not mistaken, you can trace that back to a cocaine addict of, I think it was a hundred years ago, some, some surgeon that was just reveled because of his work ethic. And it turns out it was cocaine. So that entire thing is, is around an addict. So, you know, I mean, again, whether it's like you said, whether it's, um, infidelity, gambling, social media, I mean, we all have this outlet. So it isn't about the drug. It's about that particular person at that particular time was going through something. And, you know, that's what needed to be addressed doesn't mean they're a liability in that profession the rest of their life. It just means at that moment, they had a hurdle to overcome like every single one of us does at certain points in time. Yeah. And it's, you know, and, and unfortunately, society has labeled which addictions are okay. And you look at us now, I mean, humans are an addiction prone species, you know, whether it's, you mentioned, whether it's phones, whether it's coffee, whether it's, you know, whether it's video games, whether it's eating uh, cigarettes, alcohol, drugs, whatever it may be, we are a an addiction-prone species because of our reward pathway. The reward pathway dumps and dumps, you know, these wonderful endorphins and chemicals that make us want to do more of whatever that is that stimulated that reward pathway. And then we chase that. And yet we've labeled certain ones as as a moral failing, a personal failing, as opposed to just understanding the way human beings work and then providing the assistance and support that people need to get through that. Um, and, you know, nobody thinks twice about the fact that you go to a restaurant and look and all four people at the table are buried in their phones, not making eye contact, not communicating with each other. But, you know, as soon as somebody mentions uh, or even going out and, you know, everybody getting you know, smashed, intoxicated. Nobody, now if there's a bad outcome, a drunk driving accident, everybody gets worked up about that. But otherwise, but if you mention, you know, an opioid misuse or, or addiction to that type of drug, all of a sudden that is a weak person. And that's what we have to get past that um, in order for us to move forward. And to think that we can ostracize or sweep that under the rug, you know, that person, you know, whatever, it impacts every single one of us, not you know, whether financially, whether societally, whether it's from the healthcare standpoint, whether it's from law enforcement standpoint, whatever the point, the part is, it impacts every single one of us, whether directly involved or not. And it's going to take us all to shift the narrative and shift our position on it. Absolutely. Well, I want to get to your NASCAR, you know, um, work, but just you know, we've been talking about a lot of topics that I hit in the book, and another one is driving. Now, coming from the UK, I kind of illustrate about our our driving test is considerably harder than the one here. That's again another another insanity kind of observation of you know doing the same thing, expecting different results. So with you being involved with these high-level professional drivers, with you being an ER physician, seeing the victims of, of traffic accidents over and over and over again, 
what is your perspective on driving? Like in here in Florida, it's extremely easy to pass. I haven't seen anything in the 20 years I've been in the US or almost 20 years of ever addressing, making it harder, more challenging, longer, higher requirements. What is your perspective on the civilian driving test and standards? Well, you know, a lot of it has to do, and it's not just even getting your license, it's theoretically maintaining it because we don't always keep our level of expertise at driving. Um, you know, I think all of us have probably had family members that were like, you know what, you probably don't need to be driving anymore. We need to, we probably need to take those keys and get another solution. Actually, I was talking uh, to the medic this morning about, uh, about her grandparents um, and their driving and, you know, of, of not being safe anymore and finding alternative plans, whether that be a ride share type program, you know, Uber, Lyft or whatever it may be, or how do they get around? Um, you know, and, and I think we desperately need one, you know, driver's education in the United States was always considered a joke. You know, you go to that class to be an easy thing to drive around a little bit, learn how to use turn signals and learn, you know, how, how do you pick who goes first to the stop sign and all that type of thing. But instead of really doing like legit driving training, you know, whether it's actually how to drive in adverse conditions, whether it's, you know, you know, dealing with um, emergencies on the road. And actually a friend of mine, a physician uh, in Kentucky, when his daughter turned 16, instead of just doing a regular driver's ed, he sent her to actually a police military based driving school um, where they learn you know, how to do, you know, J turns and, you know, tactical driving and evasive driving and all that other stuff to learn how to push the mat. Cause what we're doing, unfortunately, is we are teaching everybody how to drive in an ideal situation. Well, bad, badness in, in motor vehicles doesn't happen in an ideal situation. It happens when there's rain or snow or a lot of traffic or speed or whatever there may be. So learning, teaching people how to deal with the extremes and then have them come back and, and usual is going to be typical, but then decreasing distractions. You know, the, here in Tennessee, you can't even have your, you can't have your phone in your hand or it's theoretically breaking the law and you can get pulled over and get a ticket for it. You know, dropping those distractions, keeping focused, you know, increasing the safety uh, in the vehicles with the technology that's there to help protect. But we're going to get to the point that the cars are so smart and so protective that it further distracts us and we start focusing on other things because we know that the car is going to stop itself or it's going to stay in its own lane or it's going to do the things that we assume that it's going to do. And so we're paying attention to all different types of stuff and trying to eat and trying to comb our hair and maybe shave and, you know, put on makeup and, you know, checking our phone, checking Twitter and Facebook and doing all the things that we need to do uh, that we think we need to do while we're driving. But we've got, you know, we, it's one of the most dangerous things that we're going to do on a daily basis. And, you know, so an example, you mentioned NASCAR. There was one of the drivers uh, a, a couple of months ago who was punished and fined because they got their phone up while they were practicing. Uh, where they, where they, you know, they were doing some testing and actually, I don't know, shot a video or something. I saw it on social media and they got in significant trouble because that was a distraction. And they said, and, and NASCAR says, when you're driving this car, your entire focus is on the safety and operation of that vehicle, nothing else. And, you know, that's where we have to get. Um, and so that means, you know, challenging, you know, making more challenging testing standards. It's not about a written. Sure, you've got to know the laws about automotive operation, but can you actually function an automobile? You know, I just, I, I got my first driver's license just down the road here. 
uh, when I turned, well, 15 at the, at the permit license and then 16 with my permanent license and taking that driving test, which was basically, you know, a, a three minute drive around the block, you know, did you use your signals? Did you stop completely? And did, were you able to park the vehicle? That's not very practical. What's practical is how do you manage in Atlanta traffic going 85 miles per hour on 75 with thousands of your best friends out there and how do you function in that situation or like today here where it's pouring down rain and roads are flooded you know how do you manage that and decrease the risk of hydroplaning or just a few weeks ago when it's ice and snow outside how do you function a vehicle what type of vehicle you know what are the things you have to realize it's not about going in the snow and ice it's about stopping in the snow and ice you know those are the things that we have to get to and get past your defensive line coach for the football team teaching driver's education because that's who got tapped to do it and like mine when i did driver's ed we spent more time running errands for uh at that point the basketball coach than we did for than we did actually learning what we do in adverse conditions and challenges when it comes to driving yeah well i think it's 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 such an important conversation as you said i i've definitely seen more death attributed to driving than i have anything else in my career very few people have died in a fire you know um but there seems to be a lack of education of the why. Oh, use your blinker. Uh, versus, well, here's why you lose your, use your blinker. Okay, you're going along 60 miles an hour. You're going to turn into this road. You're telling the person behind you, hey, in, in X amount of feet, I'm going to start braking because I'm going to turn in here. Person behind sees the blinker. Okay, I'm going to be prepared because otherwise I'm going to go in the back of the person or I'm going to pass them because there's two lanes. I don't ride the ass of the car in front because if a child runs in front of that car, they would have braked in time and I just rammed them and they ran over the child. You know, these are these are the things that people need to be taught so that then they go, I know why to use my blinker. So I'm always going to use my blinker, even if there's no cars around. There might be a kid waiting to cross a road or whatever. It still helps them. So I just see like, we had to do hours and hours and hours of driving tests. You know, we pass usually like every third or fourth attempt it takes. And it's like you said, the written's pretty easy. It's the it's the driving one, but you think about you know uh, a fighter pilot. I just interviewed someone last night. The reps we need reps. You fall to your lowest, you know, you fall to your level of of of, uh, of training. Well, if your level of training is driving once around a block, which is exactly what my Florida driving test was as well, then your level of training is absolutely zero. So how are you going to function then when you're actually, as you said, stressed with, with snow, with speed, with someone cutting in front of you, with the, the three teenagers in the back egging you on to, to you know, drive like an a-hole? You have to have that foundation. So that's your, your base. And your base is, is at a good point. Then as you progress as a driver, you can improve on that. Well, and it's, it, and unfortunately, it's something that disproportionately impacts our young, younger drivers too. We're expecting American drivers to learn how to drive as they're driving with the rest of us out there. And so when did I feel like I was a decent driver? Probably five years, three to five years after getting my license is when I felt like I was a decent driver um, and could handle most situations um, relatively well. Um, last, last speeding ticket was at age 21, I think. Um, and that's just a lot of that's luck. But, you know, and I'm a pilot also. And so I'm glad you mentioned pilot. So when you do flight training, you don't train just to go out on a perfect day and you take off, fly a very basic flight and land. 
your training is what ha- what are you going to do when this crap goes sideways? So you work on stalls. So how do I prevent stalls? How do I react when there is a stall? What about unusual attitudes? Like if I close my eyes and put my head down and they get the plane in a crazy position, how do I recover that before I get into something that's really dangerous? Or how do I deal with ice or with turbulence or with wind shear? You know, and then just like flying down here for this, when I came in, it had been a couple of months since I had flown. I was by myself, and so I take the opportunity to do some extra takeoff and landings you know, when I arrive here, just so I can get, you know, get that muscle memory back to practice before I get my family in there, make sure I'm current. You have to have so many takeoff and landings. They have to be certain number at night for you to carry passengers. You have to do certain stuff to make sure that you're medically cleared and safe to be in the airplane. You have to do certain things, you know, biannual flight reviews every two years to make sure that you are still qualified to fly that airplane. Even though I'm flying 100 hours per year, every two years I have to get in with a flight instructor for them to say, okay, you're still you're still competent at this. You, you know, we can work on a couple of little habits or things that you have that you could improve, but you still have that ongoing review. Um, and then, you know, for pilot pilot, like the commercial pilots, they medical reviews every six months, every, you know, that the regular use in the simulators and practicing, you know, to make sure that they, before they get behind the wheel of that airplane, you know, for lack of a better term, they, you know, they have proven that they not only, have the skills and the experience, but they continue to maintain those skills and experience. Now, do we need to have regular uh, driving tests? No, I don't know. I don't know that we need to once, once you get your license and improvement. Now, do we need a harder introduction? Yes. I think we need a more stringent training process, more stringent testing process. Then question is at what age do we want to continue? We want to retest people, you know, for the potential to continue that, um, that skill. And then if somebody demonstrates uh, that they have a, a significant flaw in their driving, whether it's somebody who gets in a wreck because they're distracted or somebody who consistently gets road, you know, road traffic violations of some sort, you know, getting them back into some legitimate education um, to make sure that they're in a good place, not just sitting in, you know, driving school where you sit there and you go over this is a caution sign. This is a yield sign. You have to, this means you should slow down and be ready for other traffic to come on. No, legitimate you know, this is how you effed up, and this is what this is what we need to do to prevent that from moving forward. And and you know, there's some people that probably do need to either either have their license, well, either suspended or or removed because of their behaviors out there on the road. Some people just aren't made for driving. I mean, even within the sport uh, of 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 motorsports and auto racing, there's some people that probably shouldn't be out there. They don't necessarily have the skill set to do so. Um, and you know that point eventually that gets weeded out but on on our highways and roads out there that doesn't tend to happen no well that was a great great insight thank you especially with you being a pilot as well so nascar tell me how you went from the er physician to entering that world so i grew up here in east tennessee so for 20 years bristol motor speedway is just 15 miles down the road and in fact we just found out got the text while we were sitting here talking that all the racing today is canceled and transitioned to tomorrow because of the amount of rain and flooding that we're having. And um, and so I was here and went to every spring and fall race at the Speedway here for years, I mean, for 20, 25 years. So I was a huge fan. Um, and then when I moved to Kentucky, 
the University of Kentucky had the contract for Kentucky Speedway, and they knew I liked NASCAR, and I had already had a year residency, so I could get my state, I could get my resident license at that point, and so I got my license, and they had me up there working the infield care center and the you know stands, the care centers and the stands for Kentucky Speedway, and I did that for probably eight to ten years, and then I left University of Kentucky. Um, they transitioned the contract to a private company. And so then I started working the infield care center. Good friend, uh, Dr. Bobby Lewis at Talladega is from UAB. Um, he is the medical director at Talladega. And through our relationship and knowing each other through the American College of Emergency Physicians, he invited me down to come start working with them down there. And so I started working great team, great group down there at, uh, at Talladega. And then uh, after about four years, they created this program, which is the traveling safety team. The drivers wanted a traveling safety team that, you know, knew a lot of the tracks that had extra training, that knew the drivers and their histories and those types of things. And so uh, NASCAR, because of our relationship there, recommended me for the team. They called. I got I did a you know test drive, you know, quote unquote, test drive um, at it was going to be Talladega, uh, but I had my nephew's graduation. And um, so I wasn't able to do that whole weekend. But then at Kentucky Speedway, I worked that race. At the end of that race, they offered me a position to be consistently on the team. I worked a few more races that year, including Talladega, Bristol, uh, at that point, Miami Homestead, where the championship was. And then the next year, I did 12 to 14 race weekends and have continued since then. And then last year, um, I became the medical director for the team. So early 2020. Uh, my first race was the Daytona 500, where uh, Ryan Newman had his major ex, uh, major crash. Um, you know, saw that you know just lump in your throat, kind of nauseated feeling when you saw it happen, and, the, and all the teams, you know, the groups, the the track services, our team, the Daytona fire and safety folks working on that, just watching it from home. Um, you know, just hoping everything turned out well, which it did. And then thinking, well, it's only up from here. You know, this is going to be a great year. Everything's going to be fantastic. And then came COVID um, and just kind of reset everything. We took uh, like two months off and had the return to racing. And then I worked about 21 events last year, 21 weekends or, or what, what is name weekends? Because we had a lot of double headers where we would do a weekend and race again on Wednesday or Tuesday, Wednesday, and then go a weekend next uh, on the next one. Um, and then we're back at it again this year. Um, you know, worked the Daytona 500, worked Phoenix here at Bristol right now. We've got another racing series coming up that's that's being started in June and July that we'll be assisting with as well. And so it's it, it's fun because it for me, I love motorsports, I love medicine, and I get to combine them. Just like when we talked about media earlier, I get to combine the two things. And so this allows me to be a doctor on a track. The stress level is just exponentially lower than working in the emergency department with everything you see there, getting to travel, getting to see places, getting to experience a sport that I love, um, working with NASCAR and, and expanding their efforts with medicine and healthcare. And now with COVID, you know, have, actually having a lab out of Daytona for COVID, uh, working with the protocols, getting one of the, you know, getting the first major sport back on, you know, back on the field per se, uh, once COVID was going and it's, it's been really, it's been a, it's been a fantastic and rewarding, um, experience. And, you know, you never know how long these things are going to last when you're dealing with sports. You don't, you know, don't know about contracts. You don't know about sponsorships and all those types of things. So I don't know how long it's, you know, it's the rest of my career. Um, but you never know. And, you know, at that point you just, you know, enjoy every, enjoy every weekend, enjoy every trip and, 
make the most of it and, and hope that you make things better for people. Beautiful. Well, from a trauma medicine perspective and or extrication, what were some of the idiosyncrasies that you saw on the track that you hadn't seen prior to that? Well, and, and you always, of course, there's this feeling within fire and EMS that a doctor is useless in the field. And for the most part, you know, I, I think with a lot of physicians who've only lived their entire life within a clinic or within the hospital setting, that may be true. But there's a group of physicians you know, EMS-based medical directors, physicians, tactical physicians, working with police, uh, police, military, that type of thing, that have unique experience and have that real-life, you know, frontline, um, scene-based experience. And there was a lot of onboarding. You know, there's things I had to learn uh, with regard to fire suppression and extrication and those types of things. But, you know, at the same point, you know, it's just being able to, as a physician, apply the knowledge, experience, and thousands of hours of acute care medicine with the expertise of fire and paramedics and EMS in general, you know, to bring those together to deal with these types of situations, to never know what you're going to come up against, you know, whether it's a vehicle on its roof, whether it's against a wall, whether it's on fire, whether it's multiple vehicles, or whether it's like Daytona, uh, where they're, you know, in a, basically in a swamp because there's been so much rain, you know, and dealing with those types of situations and getting to critically think and evaluate and to manage those types of situations and working as part of the scene command and management. And then, you know, how do you work with evaluating and managing a driver's health and safety while you have towing people trying to get the vehicle hooked up, while you have um, the fire, the, the fire based uh, folks trying to make sure you got fire suppression and control. And then, you know, if a situation where you need to cut a roof uh, or get access to the driver of that orchestra of, of cutting of cutting a roof off and, and, and protecting a driver at that same time and how to address them and making room for everybody. And that's, you know, it's really interesting and cool how that works. And then understanding that, you know, each track is a little bit different and how they staff it and experience levels and their opportunities and getting those communications. How do we communicate on the track? Certain tracks have hand signals. Certain ones do just voice prompts. You know, a lot of it depends on the size of the track, on whether you can actually communicate. Because at Bristol, we can't communicate because all the cars are right up on you. So it's always too loud to talk. And so you end up using a lot of hand signals. And so, you know, that is... It, it it's really cool seeing these different areas of the country and different folks and working with them and of course dealing and working with the drivers and knowing that everything that you're doing is kind of under the microscope you know with dozens if not many dozens of cameras just focused directly on you and on that situation and everything is broken down to the the nth degree and when there's a major incident you know going back and doing the quote hot wash of like every single second is accounted for and this was here and this happened there and this did this and how do we make this process better and honestly translating that into what we do on a daily basis whether it's emergency medicine whether it's ems whether it's fire taking those types of things and actually using those to increase the safety and and approach to you know what we do in our regular lives um and, and so it's it's that, you know, just a fantastic and incredible opportunity. And then, you know, overall expanding that motorsports and working with IndyCar and working with IMSA and SRX and NASCAR and all of those different teams to make it better. Because, you know, the, the IndyCar team has been established for years and, you know, working with them in the past, but now getting to work closely with Tim Boffman 
and his team on on how they do reconstruction and how they you know work on extrication and that sh- that sharing of knowledge and experiences to make all of motorsport sa- uh, safer and better has been one of the truly cool things that this particular the GMR based safety team idea has been really cool to have these motorsport summits where we can bring these different motorsports together and talk about the safety and wellness and medicine. You know, everybody thinks it's just about getting into a vehicle and driving really fast and whatever pattern is designed for that race. But there's so much more that makes a race happen. And it comes out to about 1500 people um, on any given race weekend between teams and drivers and, um, and firefighters and medics and tires and everybody else that's involved there you know for us in nascar it's about 1500 people per you know per day uh, that it takes to make it happen and just seeing all that is it's just really cool and it's another you know emergency physicians and, and fire and ems get cool opportunities as well but you know as emergency medicine one of the surgeons came down and said all you emergency physicians have a side hustle it's like you know it does i mean we're we're the masters and or not the masters but the specialists of the acute episodes of care so it gives us great opportunity to do cool stuff outside the typical cons- the typical confines of an emergency department, whether that's wilderness, whether that's motorsports, whether that's tactical, EMS, whatever it may be. There's a lot of great opportunities, and this happens to be mine. Yeah, well, it's, it's a hell of a perspective, and it's really interesting hearing, like you said, the high level of training of the drivers, but also you know the the team that responds. And you know, I've, I had a, f- a friend of mine who was our CrossFit coach when I first found the gym that I train at now. And he came from NASCAR and I think he, he trained the pit crews and he was their strength and conditioning coach amongst other people. So having, you know, again, that ownership of not only your skills, but your strength and conditioning so that you're able to respond, you know, in that high stress environment, fit in the fire suits, as you said, um, you know, these are all very important takeaways from this conversation. Yeah. It's a pizza or CrossFit. That's the determination every year when I get my new suit. Is it pizza or CrossFit? Um, because you zip that thing up and you know there's not many not many things that are hidden you know at that point you know if i start to carry a little bit more dad bod into the next year than the year before it will definitely show up um and it's you know dealing with nascar before in the you know olden days you know that wasn't always about you know it was guys that were great with cars they built their own cars they worked on their own cars and they drove their own cars and so it wasn't about but now you're seeing these elite Athletes. You look at somebody like Jimmy Johnson, NASCAR, IndyCar, uh, doing some IMSA as well, who often participates in triathlons, um, marathons, triathlons, the Iron Ironman competitions, um, and the the strength and conditioning of these folks. Because you're talking about the G forces that are involved, the heat that's involved, the reflexes and skills, you know, the fine motor skills that are involved. They really are elite. Well, if they're going to be successful, are going to be elite athletes. Um, with training and you're talking about you know in the summer our cars are running 140 degrees inside it for three hours um, with very little air movement and to think about all of that stress on the body and you know losing 10 15 pounds per race because of water weight and then the pit crews you mentioned the pit crews you know most of them are former collegiate or pro athletes um, who come in and and are the tire changers, the jackmen, uh, or the the fuel the fuelers, you know everybody else? Because you have to in this sport, you have to get a car, four new tires, everything cleaned off, refueled, adjusted, and ready to go in slightly over twelve seconds. 
um, which is just incredible. And, you know, to say that they're not athletes would just be, you know, just be, well, it'd be completely false because, you know, the amount of training that goes into it, as you mentioned with your CrossFit coach, the amount of training and practice and, and job specific focused experience is, um, is really, it's, it doesn't show up as much, uh, you know, in the public eye, but, you know, being with them there and seeing them, um, you know, that it's, they truly are athletes, you know, it's just, they're athletes that take a 3,400 pound car at 180, 190 miles per hour around a track. Absolutely. Well, you have such an unusual perspective then. So you're an ER physician, you're, you're working with NASCAR. Tell me about your journey into uh, disseminating some of that information through some of the shows that you do now. Uh, so I, I mentioned in college, I actually worked for public radio, actually WETS-FM, um, just across the street here. And actually because I wanted to just do radio, I had experience doing radio broadcast with my church I went to here, narrating the church broadcast. And so then I went, I went and actually applied to work for the student radio station here that just broadcasts on campus. So just a few people listening kind of stuff. And they said they wouldn't take me because I wasn't a communications major. And so then I went and applied for WTS FM, which is a public radio station that reaches a quarter million people. And they gave me the opportunity to run the board on Sundays and then come in on Thursdays as well. And I started creating my own shows. I made a film music program that ran for about 10 years um, I started, I helped uh, produce and create a, a Latin music show uh, for the public radio station. And then and then between college and med school, I worked for a TV station as a production assistant, you know, editing tapes and getting newscast ready, running cameras, running sound, running tape, those types of things. And so then going into uh, residency, I still continued some volunteer stuff through med school, but then in residency, you know, did a little bit of stuff, but not really because there wasn't a great opportunity. I did do a rotation up at the ABC News Medical Unit in Needham, Massachusetts, up near Boston, uh, because I had an extra month that I could use for my own little selective rotation or elective rotation. And then once residency was done, I came back around creating podcasts, you know, for I had Everyday Medicine for Physicians and ASAP Frontline. Well, ASAP Frontline, it was Everyday Medicine was first. And it was a public-facing one for public radio. And then it became a physician-based one, so Everyday Medicine for Physicians. And then the American College of Emergency Physicians asked me to do their podcast, which I've done now for about the last five years. Um, Every week, it started off as once a month and twice a month and every week. And so we've now done about, you know, what is it, about 250, 275 episodes. And, you know, talking to a lot of the movers and shakers. And what I found was that as a community emergency physician, I didn't necessarily have the expertise, but the expertise was out there. So it's not about learning everything yourself and, and, and me just talking about the research and acute coronary syndrome out of hospital cardiac arrest. It was finding the people that either did that research or that that was an area that they, they were ex- super experienced in. And so we do those interviews and felt like it was something where not only did I want to learn it and make my practice better and make my care for my patients better, but also to get that information out to other physicians, to other healthcare professionals, so they could do the same, so that knowledge dissemination. And then with regard to TV, I came back around and started doing, you know, what's called the doc is in. It was called what's going around initially, but going in and doing TV segments, news-based segments, and then producing these now 
that are weekly on six different stations in the southeast called the Doc is in. Um, just talking about common, you know, public uh, public interest based medical stuff. Just as simple as, you know, we mentioned some of the dietary stuff, COVID stuff, ankle sprains, car accidents, dealing with cold, dealing with hot. You know, the stuff that we typically would see, but giving that physician emergency physician perspective on it, and then being available for interviews and TV and radio. And so it's been something that I had developed before. And then once I finished residency, I was able to bring that back around and reapply that in. And my whole goal is to educate and to make life better, you know, and, and, uh, for not only the patients, but helping physicians and other healthcare professionals advance their gigs, advance their careers and advance the care that they provide. Um, because, you know, the goal is eventually I would love to work myself out of a job, uh, to say everybody's safe, everybody's healthy because they have the knowledge, they have the experience that they need to do to keep themselves healthy and safe. And we know that's not going to happen, but honestly, if somebody's life is better, somebody's life is saved because of some of the information, then it makes it all worth it. And, you know, I hope that's the case. And it's just like this. If you have that, if you have a gift, using that gift to improve the lives of others, whether they're colleagues or whether they're people that depend on our careers, making those better, uh, making lives better is kind of the whole reason I do it. Beautiful. Well, I can see why Joe connected us because we definitely uh, have a lot in common. (laughs) Um, well, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure you're better at CrossFit than I am. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not a. I'm not a CrossFit phenom. That's for sure. I'm fitter no, than that, some and less fit than others. I, well, yeah, I'm less fit than most. So, I, you know, actually, here I can't. I went to a CrossFit gym here when I came down. Had a day off, um, and so I went to the gym, and they're like, "What's your?" And I, I so I want to make sure that this is an all levels class because, you know, I'm not a novice at this point. I'm like low end to intermediate, but I'm definitely not really great and i'm definitely not a, a you know advanced level crossfitter so you know i'm just there to get my heart rate up to build my strength to, to stay fit so i can be around for my kids and my family and do things like running on tracks when somebody turns right when they should have turned left yeah well and that's what i've always used it's a means to an end i've never competed the only only crossfit looking competitions i've ever done were fundraisers you know and there's one firefighter specific one called the 343 hero challenge that they do in orlando and they did until mm-hmm. last year sadly i hope it picks up this year but yeah that that's a fun thing to do but yeah as far as everything else i I'd, I'd spend an hour doing crossfit so i can be good at stuff in real life so well i wonder life compete with and actually trying for me is trying to keep up with my wife because she is so naturally fit and healthy that uh, I'm just trying to keep up so that she doesn't find you know somebody who's more qualified uh, physically and emotionally than me and run off and and leave me on my own because I would not function well on my own. Well, that's a good reason. That's a good motivator. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I want to transition to some closing questions. Um, the first one I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend that can be related to what we've discussed or something completely different? Uh, one of my favorites um, is Dreamland uh, by Sam Quinones. Um, in terms of the opioid epidemic, that, that is actually, to me, is just it has set the stage for so much of my education, teaching, and understanding of the opioid epidemic. Um, you know, in terms of personal reading, you know, just relaxation, joy reading, I actually love, uh, forensic crime stuff. So Patricia Cornwell, uh, now looking at some of the, uh, Jefferson Bass novels, uh, that we're reading right now, those are just for pleasure. But if you're going to read one that you really want to change the way you think on things, um, looking at dreamland, another one that is fantastic. And I interviewed, I've interviewed both authors is, um, uh, 
is it five or seven? It's what are, some are days at Memorial? Five five days at Memorial, seven days at Memorial. It's after Hurricane Katrina, and honestly, the name's just slipping off of it. Uh, but it's it's about you know the post Katrina in New Orleans and in Memorial Hospital and and the choices they made on you know how do you deal with patients? How do you deal with uh, with um, getting people out of the hospital to a safe area and that whole environment. And I thought that was an incredible book that my wife actually recommended to me while we were traveling to New Orleans, to New Orleans. And, um, um, that, that's definitely worth it. And, you know, while you're asking the next question, I'm going to actually get the name of the book straightened out. Beautiful. Well, you mentioned Dreamland. I had Sam Quinones on the show and it's a, a great, great book. And then you mentioned as well, um, Chasing the Scream, Johan Hari. So I think if you want to understand addiction yes. and, and the issues that we have at the moment, those two are um, absolute must-reads. Yeah, and it's five days at Memorial. It's, Brilliant. I had it right the first time. Beautiful. All right, well then, a movie. Is there a movie or movies that you love? So there's a standard group of movies that I mandate that all of my students watch. And the problem is that everybody, all my students are so young now that none of them have seen them. Um, so my favorite, my favorite, favorite movie is Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Um, so just, just a fantastically made movie and so thick with, in, with just great writing, you know, great scene creation. Um, so that is hands down my favorite movie. I also like, of course, Braveheart. Um, who else? So you have Braveheart, you have Green Mile. And, um, there's one other that, that I typically recommend to my students. Uh, but you know, if to say that there's one, it's Oh brother, Beautiful. I can watch that. I can watch that every day and every day. And you know, the, the question on a movie is what movies would you, could you watch now for the 30th time and be just as entertained and enjoy it just as much as you did the first time. And that's one of them for me. Love it. Well, what about documentaries? Any of those that you love? Uh, so, well, the, I mean, honestly, the the Jordan one uh, that just came out was fantastic, um, and that was that was one of the good my favorites. And for me, I was a history minor going through college, and I love anything regarding uh, World War II, um, just because you you see this war and how everything happened, how it was all, how it came about, how does somebody who is relatively ostracized from a a society and community become uh, a dictator, um, you know, such as Adolf Hitler, how it happens, how it pulls the whole world in the steps you could do, uh, to prevent that moving forward. Because honestly, understanding how all of that stuff happens is how we prevent those things from happening in the future. And I think we're losing some of that right now. And unfortunately, one of my favorite groups of patients to talk to are World War II veterans. And I actually talked to one last year who was a paratrooper in World War II and, you know, he was 96 years old. And, you know, we have so few of those to talk to now, but basically anything on World War II, I will, I will watch just, you know, because it's so incredibly fascinating of how full societies get shifted in those directions. Absolutely. Yeah. And the thing that, like you said, is that there were a lot of powerful lessons learned. And I've always made this observation, even like immediately after you had all these, you know, men and women fighting side by side for complete strangers of all backgrounds, even though I know it wasn't completely inclusive. And then you had the 1950s, which seemed mm -hmm. to be so different than the lessons you think we would have learned, you know, and now we, we have people, you know, hanging from trees again and all this kind of stuff. So um, I, I think some of those lessons were learned very, very quickly, which is, you know, heartbreaking. So I think we owe it as a generation to look back at all the 
all the lessons from history and make sure that we're not repeating. We're not sliding into, you know, a divisive, um, you know, environment that's encouraging division and hatred and, you know, some of the things that definitely adorned our screens the last few months. And well, everybody loves to, like over the last election cycle, everybody likes to compare, you know, whatever decisions are made or whatever actions to Adolf Hitler and to Germany and World War II. And, you know, unfortunately, what that does is, one, it's only being used right now for political positioning and actually waters down the impact and the magnitude of what happened in World War II with regard to the leadership and how it became the way it was and what was done to people just because of being Jewish or being gay or being mentally disabled or whatever, or physically disabled or elderly or the magnitude of what that was in, in that time during our history that millions, 13 plus million people were put to death because of who they were and people that died fighting, you know, either for or against the way that was. Um, and, you know, and you want to look at our country and see what are the things that kind of kind of drive people and drive societies to those directions and avoid those as much as you can. Um, because it's not a big shift. You don't go from, you know, Germany in economic turmoil and, you know, a recession to Adolf Hitler full on trying to take over the world and, and you know, executing or or the, the mass genocide, you know, in one day. How did we make that progress? How did they make that progression? Why did we sit on the sidelines as long as we did? Why don't you take actions better? How, why do you actually think that it was going to stop or, or it was just going to, okay, Poland, you can have Poland, but just stop there. And then, oh, crap, you didn't stop there. Now we're going to have to do something else about it. Um, you know, those are, you know, things that we have to look at because we don't, it is very possible. It is incredibly possible that any country could devolve and transition to that type of, of, you know, trying to say somebody is worth, and honestly, the, the discussion of the opioid epidemic, saying that a class or group of human beings is worth, worth less than another because of, you know, whatever you want to fill in the blank. Um, and then that can lead you to this thing. So, so then what are we going to do about it? And, you know, that's, those are things that, I, that's why history is one of the most, most important subjects that people learn in school. You know, you got to learn your math, you got to learn your uh, English, you have to learn all those different things. But, you know, history, because history does tend to repeat itself. And how do we get to where we are? And how do we get and how do we avoid where we've been in the past? Yeah, and I've seen that recently, I posted them, there was a really, really sad video of an elderly Asian lady who had been attacked by a younger white guy. And she fought him off with a with a stick. And mm -hmm. he was being wheeled away by the medics in the gurney. And I put a post about hatred, hatred in general. And I had people, you know, some of whom I like and respect saying, oh, why are you parroting liberal, liberal narrative? And I'm like, dude, this is hatred. And that's the problem is when we have an issue like this, a school gets shot up. Some of you are like, don't you take my guns? But that's not, no one's saying that. We're talking about that a bunch of children were murdered in a school. We're talking about that this elderly lady was attacked by this guy. The hatred is behind it. This, the moment you start labeling and taking sides and saying, you're taking my guns or your AR-15 is the reason that all these people are dead, you're negating the middle part, which is that there's, there's a, there's a nucleus to all this hatred. And like you said, whether it comes from you know, the nucleus, I think a lot of crime comes from the 
um, prohibition of, of drugs. That's why we have gangs and why we have the horrendous murders in, on the Mexican border and all these things. They all stem from that one horrific nucleus. And I think that's the thing that we're seeing now is hatred is being allowed to happen, but we can't talk about it because it's it's this or that. It doesn't fit whatever conversation versus all of us saying the black community, the white community, the gays, you know, the, the, the whatever whatever pigeonhole you want to put yourself in, there is there is a, a movement to to allow hatred. There were police officers murdered by supposedly BLM protesters on the streets. You know, when that happened, there were there's a police officer murdered in the the um the government building in that thing. These are two different groups of people doing exactly the same horrible thing. So that is a conversation I think we need to do is band together, forget our labels, and just understand that there are areas in our society that are really encouraging this division and this hate. And that concept, that principle is what we need to focus on, not the minutiae. Well, and you, you talked about it some, and it's the, the narrative redirect. So you talk about a shooting, you know, at a school, and that narrative redirect that goes away from children and a murderer to how does this, what about me? You know, how, and I think, United States now, a lot of us, we're, we're very self-centered. Um, what about me? Um, you know, be, either being the victim or, you know, how is this, uh, or somehow, you know, making this into some personal attack. Instead of looking at what it is of saying, why would somebody, because I think for most of us, the idea of going into any type of public setting and killing a human being, an innocent human being, um, no matter the situation, is just so far out of the norms that it wouldn't even consider. But then how is it happening? Then why is it happening? Where does somebody get to that point that they feel that that is a reasonable decision and path to take? And we attack guns and we attack politics and we attack all of these things and yet we're not actually looking at the why why things happen the way they do and what we can do to prevent it in the future you know what we can do as society to you know shift that entire mindset that that is an okay uh, course of action because i think all of us say it's not an okay course of action but to a group of people it has somehow escalated to that is the most reasonable path of decisions. And we get that narrative shift to start turning it into red and blue, left or right, as opposed to saying this is a terrible situation. Innocent people were killed. Innocent lives were lost at the hands of this murderer. And how do we prevent that moving forward? It's not about the politics. This is about a human being that made a choice that took the lives of innocent people. And we have to do everything that we can to figure out how to stop that, not turn it into a debate of right versus left or red versus blue or, or guns versus no guns or whatever it is. It is, as we kind of mentioned earlier, the human being is a broken, is a broken animal. And, you know, society is based on limiting and resolving those breaks and those cracks. And unfortunately, though, we see so many of them still pop up and, and crop up. Uh, but then we we spend the time worrying about what's best for me and, you know, arguing about politics and just completely, 
you know, just complete swing and a miss. You know, you're expecting a fastball right down the middle and the curveball paints the corner and you just swing and dislocate your shoulder. Yeah, absolutely. Well, again, thank you for your perspective on that too. So one of the last closing questions, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, medical community, and all associated professions? Um, actually, there is some fantastic uh, people out there. I mean, there's so many great people doing great things out there. Um, you know, I think you know some of the some of the leaders within um, motorsports and. Um, there's actually one that's uh, one of my favorite people to work with is Tom Bryant with NASCAR, uh, Colonel, uh, former military, kind of going through that whole aspect of things. Uh, but then looking at some of the uh, folks out there within the um, within the emergency medicine community that are doing um, incredible things, um, you know, some of the task forces, some of the uh, EMS-based folks uh, that are out there. You know, there's there's so many great minds and people really, truly moving the needle um, in a positive way for healthcare. Um, and, you know, and of course, the honor of getting folks like you, authors, you know, people who've been able to put on paper, you know, a lot of these emotions and these thoughts and these experiences. You already had Sam Quinones. Um, you know, he's he is incredible. Um, and actually... One of the best that I really liked um, is um, the author of The Beauty and Breaking. Um, fantastic physician. And um, it's, it's, a, it's a, a book that talks about a combination of, of being a female African-American physician um, in modern healthcare and dealing with the challenges of a traumatic lifestyle and dealing with some of the uh, challenges that we uh, deal with from being a female African-American physician and it's by Dr. Michelle Harper. And so, you know, that I think, you know, she's an incredible person to talk to about, you know, the history, where she came from, how she is where, and the continued challenges within the system. And that's actually a book that I would definitely recommend everybody read. Uh, it's a fantastic book just about her memoir and experience. And, and I think she would be a fantastic guest. And honestly, almost about everybody that's leading up uh, stuff within the American College of Emergency Physicians would would be a, a great fit for you here. You know, and, and the nice thing is, it's just like this: just having a great conversation, uh, can, kind of peeling back the layers uh, and kind of getting to know who, how people are, and who people are, and how they got to where they are, and you know, looking and pulling little nuggets from it of of things to do and things not to do, things you'd like to look at being and things you don't want to do, and you know, it's it's. You know, all of us have these great little journeys in life, and I've never been one of living within a specific narrow construct. You know, make your life. You're given, you're blessed with some incredible talents and tools. Use them and expand them to do things that even if people say they couldn't do it, or you couldn't do it, or you shouldn't do it, or that's not the way it's ever been done, of being able to come in and advance. Like the, the greatest advances in our society are not by people who lived within uh, lived on a within the lane. Uh, they they stepped out and did things. We didn't become a, a population that could fly around the world in hours by somebody saying air flight is impossible. Is by somebody that said we've always been told it's impossible, and I'm going to prove it wrong. And you know, so that's you know, just seeing all those life experiences and and things out there, you know. 
that's the, the nice thing about this conversation here is, you know, learning about who you are, how you got to where you are, your life experiences. And you ask me the questions that kind of peel back layers that we, you know, usually don't hear from me until we've been friends for quite some time. Um, so it's, you know, that's, and I think Michelle would be, you know, she's one that poured that all that history into her book and get her on here for Beautiful. sure. I will I have to get the book first and read it though. Um, well, thank you so much. So the, the very last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you online and your podcasts, um, what do you do to decompress? I do love to sleep. Um, I do, I do, a, I do love a good nap, but for me, so I live, um, out in the County, um, just outside of Lexington, South of Lexington on five acres. My house backs up to, um, Ramsey farm, which is a thoroughbred horse farm. And, some cow pastures off the side. And so for me to relax and decompress is to dis- disconnect. And I finally found my forever home that I could live in the rest of my life. You know, it's just when I walk in the smell of a wood burning fireplace and all this stuff is just everything kind of melts away. You can be able to sit there on a nice day and, and, you know, just sit there and just watch out the back, whether it's a sunrise or just sitting on the porch with my wife or running around the yard with the kids, you know, that to me is, is heaven. Um, and then, you know, the, the opportunities to travel, you know, getting to see places and, and to see people and to, and to experience local restaurants and local culture, you know, being on the beach. But, you know, for me, uh, you know, it's, I want to share my life and my adventure with my family, with my wife and my kids. And one of the challenges with this life is there is a lot of traveling without them. But then being able to pull them along and even COVID helped some of that because with remote school and virtual school, we could travel and be anywhere um, and be able to share those experiences and see my kids laugh and smile and, you know, to see the joy in my wife in the same way. You know, it's to me, that's that's my decompression. That's my relaxation. That's how I reset. Beautiful. Love it. All right. Well, then if people want to learn more about you, find your podcast, where are the best places online? Well, podcasts you can catch. It's ASAP Frontline, A-C-E-P, uh, Frontline, one word there. Um, and it's available, um, you know, on, on all the platforms. It comes off SoundCloud, but you can get it on iTunes. You can get it on Stitcher. You can get it on iHeartRadio. You can get it wherever you want to. Just, you know, and we're, we have a new one every single week um, from everybody, from authors um, like yourself. That's called my author series. I think I've had five so far, uh, five different authors, um, to physicians, to you know, we did one on NASCAR on the return to racing. I talked to the NFL Players Association medical director. You know, so this is, and we actually have some public-facing uh, content now, especially with COVID, um, to bring experts, but then puts it from a public perspective. And you know, so you know, check it out. There's a lot of great episodes out there. You can learn. You know, basically pick what you want to learn about, and we've got some fantastic guests on there. Um, on Facebook. I've got ASAP Frontline and also have Stanton MD Everyday Medicine. Stanton, Every, Stanton MD Everyday Medicine is the Facebook page with 8,200 of my best friends um, where we've, we spread. It's basically public-based information and knowledge and um, a lot of the media stuff goes there. I'm at Everyday Med on Twitter. Um, and then there's StantonMD.com uh, that is just kind of the placeholder for all of the stuff media-based. Media and of course, if you you can always contact me, um, you know it's I'm, I made my email pretty easy. It's Ryan A. Stanton, so my 
first name, middle initial, last name at Gmail. And you can always contact me and uh, be happy to talk things over and suggestions and guidance and good things and bad things and whatever it may be. Um, so those are, those are probably the best ways to get in touch. I'm on Instagram too, but I'm not really good at Instagram. I, I just, I don't know. Maybe I finally reached that age where I've lost the ability to adapt new technology. <laughs> well, I just want to say thank you so much. It's been such a, a great conversation. Obviously, we're definitely kindred spirits in the way we think as far as our you know, perception on some of the real game-changing areas that proactively could, could make a difference and stop some of the suffering that we see. Um, but you know, your, your journey through NASCAR and all these other elements have made it a fascinating conversation. So I knew we were going to go more than an hour and we definitely did. Um, thank you for your flexibility of me screwing up the time zones today. Um, and, uh, I really appreciate you being so generous with your time. Well, it became very easy when halfway through I got the text that all racing activities were canceled for today because everything's flooding. And so this is what we call a plus one day. Um, so we're, we're going to be racing on Monday here at Bristol. Um, so uh, we have all, all the time in the world now because now all I've got to do is exercise and eat and relax for the rest of the day. So it's, it's turned out to be, uh, if we're not going to be racing, it's just about as good uh, to be able to just have a chill day off day. Mm-hmm.